It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. The New Orleans Archdiocese says over the last few years, St. Augustine has been losing parishioners and struggling financially. At the parish has been declining in terms of numbers and support for a number of years. And so in this post-Katrina world, we've just reached a point where the Archdiocese can no longer support uh, that particular parish. We came to the Church of uh, Cathedral because this is the Archbishop's Church, and we're asking that we save our church. Give our church the 18 months that they gave the other church to show that we can work on our own and we can definitely be a, a parish and a parish that they need us to be, which we thought we were trying to get together after Katrina and they tried to take it away from us and we're fighting to keep our church, to keep our parish. So they're finally giving other churches in the same time they No, they gave the church in the Garden District. They gave them 18 months. They didn't give us any time. They just took our church and our parish from us. First they said it was uh, it was financial. We didn't have enough money to sustain ourselves. We had a benefactor that came up to the table and said, well, I guarantee you that I'll raise a million dollars a year for this parish and for this church to let them sustain themselves. Then after that, it was the numbers. Our numbers are up high, high. Then after that, of course, it was the uh, uh, administrative uh, piece uh, we disproved that. We've straightened that out. So what is it? Me, myself, personally, I think it's ethnic cleansing, I think it's racism, and I think it's land grabbing. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, October 16th, 2015. So I have been told. Uh, the audio segment that you heard at the beginning of the program, uh, that is a documentary film 
uh, Shake the Devil Off. Uh, it came out in 2007. Uh, I think I said throughout, uh, I think we've been on this about a month and a half or so at this point. Uh, I think I've said throughout that there are there are just so many different things, uh, so many different aspects, so many different layers of what took place, uh, not just in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, the Gulf Coast region on the whole. There's so much uh, that you can learn about the system of racism, white supremacy, all nine areas of people activity. Uh, this documentary, it focuses specifically on St. Augustine Church in New Orleans. Uh, and after the storm, powerful whites decided that they had new plans for the new New Orleans and the new St. Augustine Church. Uh, they were going to recombine different congregations and they shipped the uh, black pastor, shipped him out someplace else. Real interesting story. The uh, black congregation, they had help from white people, too, but it was mostly black people uh, really pitched in. They ended up uh, fighting to keep their church uh, it is pretty interesting you can check it out uh, the documentary again is called shake the devil off you have to listen or if you're following along reading you have to pay very close attention because this is going to pop up in this section uh, of the reading this week it is going to be brief it's not something he spends a lot of time on but it is something uh, that comes up in the text if you uh, look out for it again just so much material all areas of people activity covered uh, we will get started this is our seventh study session gary rivlin katrina after the flood we are at the midway point in the book getting close to finishing it up uh, we'll go ahead and get started this is audio segment number one context of white supremacy kroloff's permit question gnawed at Conazaro all that night and through church the next morning it was the first thing the 64-year-old Canazaro mentioned after greeting an out-of-town reporter he had invited to lunch. Canazaro drove his late-model silver Lexus to Andrea's, a favorite restaurant in Metairie. His wife sat with him in the front seat, the church pastor, and the reporter in the back. We issue permits. We're telling them it's okay to rebuild when we're still not sure. Kanazaro said. The restaurant was only a few minutes away, but he was already laying out the dilemma. He confessed he hadn't considered the question until Kroloff raised it, yet he couldn't stop thinking about it. Lunch meant more unanswered questions. The federal government had yet to issue the flood elevation maps that might require people to raise their homes. Would insurance carriers even issue policies in the flooded areas. What about the homeowners halfway through rebuilding when they learn their block is being reverted to open space? It's amazing to me. The issues I hadn't thought of until now, he said. The front page headline of the Times-Picayune ensured a big crowd at the Sheraton that Wednesday. Four months to decide. Several sub-headlines followed. In red ink, the paper declared, Negan Panel says hardest-hit areas must prove viability, and below that, in bold lettering, full buyouts proposed for those forced to move. But people mostly remember the large four-color map of the city on the front page. An obscure graphic in the PowerPoint deck 
John Beckham had prepared, I must have had two weeks of 20-hour days, he said. Used dotted black circles to show that communities lacking in parks would benefit from additional green space. The circles were large to indicate that we have not identified properties, Beckman wrote. Those will be determined with citizen involvement. But that fine print didn't make the newspaper. Instead, enormous green dots sat over New Orleans East, Gentilly, and the Lower Ninth Ward above a caption that read, Approximate Areas Expected to Become Parks. More than 1,000 people had jammed a giant Sheraton ballroom by the time the fire marshals declared that they would not let any more people inside. Members of the city council held a press conference elsewhere in the hotel to denounce the proposal before it had even been introduced. This is a process, Nagin said in his introductory remarks. This is a journey. The mayor who, Canazaro said, had signed off on his plan at Mel Lagarde's house on Monday, spoke as if this moment were a mere stop along the way. Lagarde also said a few words, but the day belonged to Canazaro, who looked resplendent in a dark suit and red tie. It's impossible to plan a city in three months, but we've tried, Canazaro said. He introduced Beckman, who asked people to imagine a New Orleans with a lot more green space and also light rail lines crisscrossing it. The plan would remake commercial corridors and stressed the need for a stronger storm protection system and called for coastal restoration. New Orleans will be a sustainable, environmentally safe, socially equitable community with a vibrant economy, Beckman said. He reminded people that George Bush was scheduled to visit the city the next day. The president had asked New Orleans for a workable, realistic plan that he could fund. This plan, Beckman implied, was the city's shot at forcing Bush to make good on his promises. Those in attendance, however, seemed only interested in what the Bring New Orleans Back Commission might be saying about their community. They were incensed mainly about Canizaro's call for a 120-day moratorium on all new city permits. All around the city, people were tired of fighting FEMA and battling insurance adjusters. Now the city was proposing another roadblock to recovery. Please let us build our own homes, pleaded a Lakeview homeowner named Charles Young. Let us spend our insurance money which we paid for on our own. This is a big, audacious plan put together by obviously brilliant people, said Freddie Yoder, the FEMA contractor on the board of the Lakeview Civic Association during his turn at the mic. But you missed the boat. We don't need a rail system. We need housing. Those were among the day's more measured comments. Harvey Bender, a laid-off city worker from New Orleans East, opened his remarks saying, I don't know you, Joe Canazaro, but I hate you. He then threatened to suit up like I'm going to Iraq and fight this. Mtengulizi Sanyika, a professor 
of African World Studies at Dillard University represented a group called the African American Leadership Project. He accused the mayor of taking part in a Katrina cleansing that would let the city's moneyed interests steal African American lands. Carolyn Parker, a resident of the Lower Ninth Ward, was more succinct. Over my dead body, she told the commissioners. Another speaker decried a plan that would turn black people's neighborhoods into white people's parks. Canazaro defended his plan. He reminded people of how much of themselves they would be giving and how much of their hard-earned money they would be spending with no guarantee that their neighbors would return. The city may not be able to provide services if you're stuck out there by yourselves, he said. But Canazaro had lost the room even before the lights were dimmed. Telling people they can't rebuild for four months is tantamount to saying they can't ever come back, said former mayor Mark Morial when it was his turn at a microphone. It's telling people who have lost almost everything that we're going to take the last vestige of what they own. If the vast majority of those at the Sheraton that day thought the Bring New Orleans Back Commission had overstepped its mandate, some living in the high ground neighborhoods felt that Canazaro had not gone nearly far enough. The reaction of John Callenborn, the head of Louisiana operations for J.P. Morgan Chase, was typical. To him, a four-month time out while everyone talked more was nothing but a way of postponing the inevitable. Callenborn, who had been on the mayor's short list for the commission, he was removed to make room for a black member, pointed to Scott Cohen, who as Tulane president had laid off more than 200 faculty members and eliminated several academic departments. Cohen was getting grief from alumni, but he was also confronting an estimated $200 million in losses. The city, by contrast, Callenborn said, was offering Canazaro's crazy halfway ideas that please no one. Janet Howard, another uptown fixture, agreed. There are some very tough decisions that have to be made here and no one relishes making them. Howard, a former corporate lawyer, had reinvented herself as a government policy expert. But to say that people should invest their money and invest their energies and put all their hope into rebuilding and then we'll reevaluate in a year, that's no plan at all. Large crowds milled around after the big meeting at the Sheraton. Canazaro would have been excused if he had escaped via a side door, but instead he headed into the audience. He was intent on finding Harvey Bender, the man who had gotten so personal when voicing his anger over the rebuilding plan. Bender had pointed an accusatory finger at Canazaro and bellowed, You've been in the background scheming to take our land. Early on, Canazaro had vowed to buy no real estate or take part in any new developments to avoid the kind of charges Bender had just made. I wanted to set the record straight, Canazaro said. I wanted him to know I wasn't going to make a dime off any of this. 
Bender was shocked when Conazaro asked for a minute of his time. Bender had attended some of the New Orleans East meetings that the Wall sisters had helped to put together in Baton Rouge. There, Conazaro was the boogeyman, the rich developer who had brought the ULI to town as a first step toward taking their land. A few days later, Bender was sitting on a silk couch in the corner of Conazaro's office. When Conazaro invited him to stop by, Bender asked if he could bring a few allies, but he ended up coming alone. He just wanted to hear my ideas for what we should do, Bender said. My thing was that people had no idea what was going on. One day, we're hearing we're rebuilding the whole city. The next, people are talking about taking our homes. I just wanted to make sure everyone had the right to make up their own mind. Ray Nagin was non-committal. Talking to a gaggle of reporters as he left the Sheraton Ballroom, he stressed that they were just at the proposal stage, but also added, the realities are that we have limited resources to redevelop our city. The following day, Nagin met with the president. There were no alcohol-free beers or late-night cigars this time, only a brief tour through the parts of the city that had remained dry. The contrast between when I was last here and today is pretty dramatic, Bush said. It's a heck of a place to bring your family. Nagin seemed to endorse the Conazaro plan at a public hearing the following day when he said, It's the way we're going to go with some tweaks. Reporters assumed he meant dropping the idea of a temporary moratorium on permits. But then the mayor sat down with David White, the friend he had given a spot on the Bring New Orleans Back Commission. I told him that from a planning standpoint, it probably made a lot of sense, White said. But from a human standpoint, it made no sense at all. There were also the politics to consider. A lot of people in the black community were looking at the first property they ever had in their family, White said. And with the mayor's race only a few months away, White counseled, it sounded like government was talking about taking that property away. One week after declaring his support for Conazaro's plan, Megan announced that one of his tweaks would be his opposition to any proposal that limited people's choice to rebuild wherever they chose. I am a property rights person, Negan said. I have confidence that our citizens can decide intelligently for themselves where they want to rebuild. Anyone wanting a building permit, he said, was welcome to stop by City Hall to pick one up. Conazaro's urban planning report had only been the first in a series of presentations the commission was unveiling that month. The Education Committee, headed by Scott Cohen, called for more autonomy for individual schools and greater accountability. The commission's Government Effectiveness Committee endorsed the idea of consolidating the city's seven elected property assessors into a single office. Its Economic Development Committee stressed the need for the city to revise its port by modernizing and pursuing new business. By then, though, no one seemed to be listening. 
Despite the mayor's words, Conazaro was acting as if his plan had Negan's full blessing. He announced that Ray Manning and Reed Kroloff would be heading up the neighborhood planning process that his committee had recommended. Neighborhoods would start meeting by February 20th. By March 20th, they would need to have a list of residents committed to returning. By May 20th, the buyouts would begin. Kroloff and Manning identified a dozen teams of experts and even worked up a budget of between $6 million and $8 million. Apparently, a FEMA official speaking without authorization promised Conazaro and others that the agency was good for the money, but then his replacement said that funding such an effort was forbidden under the law. In February, the city council decided to hire its own planning team. Their experts would help people rebuild rather than make up their minds. The council used $3 million in community development funds to hire the technical consultants needed to make their plan a reality. Meanwhile, the Louisiana Recovery Authority, unlike the Bring New Orleans Back Commission, had the statutory authority to approve or disapprove projects that the federal government would be funding through the state. Sean Raleigh, a two-term state legislature who had made a fortune in his family's outdoor advertising business, was the most outspoken of the LRA's members. Someone has to be tough to stand up and to tell the truth, Riley said. Every neighborhood in New Orleans will not be able to come back safe. People were upset when two weeks after Conazaro's presentation, the president devoted only 160 words in his State of the Union speech to what some were calling the biggest disaster in U.S. history and failed to mention New Orleans. But then, the mayor had promised Bush a blueprint for rebuilding by the end of December. Here it was the end of January, and the federal government still didn't have a plan to act on. Nagin meant it when he said he would not stand in the way of anyone wanting a building permit no matter where in the city he or she lived. People want permits to let them rebuild. Let's give them permits, he told Greg Mafert, whose portfolio included the city's Department of Safety and Permits. Mafert shifted extra inspectors and other employees to the 8th floor permits office. He reprogrammed the touchscreen kiosks the city had installed pre-Katrina and set them up in a large open room at the end of a hallway. Roving greeters were assigned to help people in the fashion of airline agents working the check-in machines at airports. Others talked to people waiting on a line that on some days reached out the door to Poitras. We'd literally see thousands of people in a week, Mufford said. A homeowner had to do more than show up. For many, the sticking point would be the number grade the city had already slapped on tens of thousands of homes across the flood zone. The grade had been determined in a fast and dirty process based on the elevation of the floodwaters in a community, the number of feet the first floor sat above the ground, and whether a home had a second floor.
the scores had a ridiculous specificity. A piece of paper would declare a home 53.14% damaged, though these were at best a good guess. The expertise of the assessors was also questionable. To help it rate each house, the city had hired the Shaw Group, one of the big multinationals FEMA was using to oversee the cleanup. The federal government also used them to do construction in Iraq. The Shaw Group turned it over to subcontractors who, the Times-Picayune revealed, hired a pet groomer and a pizza delivery man as inspectors. Yet the number mattered. A number below 50% meant that in the eyes of the government, you were renovating your house, not rebuilding it. Even if the federal government declared that homeowners needed to raise their homes to qualify for flood insurance, anyone with a number below 50% was grandfathered in. Mufford's problem was that his inspectors had saddled the majority of homeowners with a damage assessment above 50 the city would issue a permit to those with a score above 50 if they presented a plan for raising their home, which could cost tens of thousands of dollars or as much as $100,000 if a home needed to be lifted above the cement slabs common, especially in New Orleans East. So Mefert created a quick appeals process that he programmed into the city's kiosks. A new number below 50% wasn't automatic. Those with a damage assessment in the high 50s were treated differently from those clutching a paper showing a number in the low 50s to mid 50s. People had to put up some kind of argument to challenge the original assessment, yet almost 90% of those asking for a number below 50% received one. By early February, the city was issuing as many as 500 rehab permits a day. The Times-Picayune had already published a long story on what was going on when the tale of the shrinking damage assessments made page one of the New York Times. Within 48 hours, a quartet of unhappy FEMA officials stormed Greg Mefert's office, threatening him with legal action. They're in my office yelling about how if I don't cease and desist, they're going to stop reimbursing homeowners and stop reimbursing the city, Mefert said. But he worked for Negan, not for FEMA, and I had the mayor and others telling me, you must do this. The city's permits office would continue revising downward people's damage assessments. That's why Ray Negan loved Greg, Sally Foreman said. He knew he could give something to Greg, and Greg would make it happen. Those committed to the long-term viability of the country's federal flood insurance program were not amused. The U.S. taxpayer pays for the heavily subsidized flood insurance program, and in return, municipalities must enforce the government's guidelines. If New Orleans is phonying the damage reports so as to allow inadequate construction, said a former flood insurance director, they ought to get thrown out of the program. Said another, you can't destroy the flood program 
to achieve a short-term goal. But for Mabert, it underscored the extraordinary moment they were living through when putting his thumb on the scale could have this profound an impact. That was really the tipping point, Mabert said. We were rebuilding the whole city no matter what anyone else decided. Shortly after the Sheraton meeting, Nagin was in Washington testifying before Congress. The mayor used that moment in the national spotlight to plead for help. His city was broke, he said, and people needed trailers. More than 21,000 names were on a waiting list, but five months after Katrina, FEMA had delivered only 1,300 trailers. Meanwhile, he watched as the federal government allowed its contractors to fritter away millions. His people did some calculations, he said. FEMA was paying $43 a cubic yard to haul away debris, but FEMA subcontracted to a subcontractor to a third subcontractor who hired the people to do the work for $7 a cubic yard. I have been put in a position to fly back and forth between Baton Rouge and Washington, D.C. to beg and grovel for money, and I don't appreciate it, Negan said. I implore you. I beg you. I'm getting on my knees. I'm puckering up. Help us. Help us today. He was back two weeks later to plead with the White House. He asked them for between $10 billion and $15 billion to help him rebuild New Orleans. You're asking for way too much money, they told him. The news wasn't all bad. Before the end of 2005, Congress had approved $11.5 billion in block grants to help storm-ravaged areas, a measure the president signed. But Louisiana received barely half that money though its people suffered three-quarters of the damage. The city's best hope was still the Baker Bill. Let people complain that the government would be reimbursing at 60% of a property's pre-Katrina value, not 100%, but at least Baker's proposed Louisiana Recovery Corporation put the federal government on the hook for tens of billions of dollars. And it wasn't as if there were many viable alternatives in a Washington where Republicans controlled both the House and the Senate. Even Baker himself, a free market conservative from the Baton Rouge suburbs, couldn't believe he was championing a measure that would make the federal government at least temporarily the largest landowner in New Orleans. At first, the White House had flinched at this idea of a giant buyout bill with an open-ended price tag. In response, Baker added cost controls and, shortly into the new year, declared the odds better than even that it would pass. Yet the price tag turned out to be only one concern. The president had run on the idea of shrinking government, yet Baker's plan called for its expansion. It didn't sit well with some that those who'd bought flood insurance all those years would be treated the same as people who'd failed to do so. And then the government would be getting into the real estate business 
a realm that Gulf Coast recovery czar Donald Powell thought better left to the free market. By the end of January, the Baker Bill was obviously dead. The governor was in Washington for the State of the Union address at the invitation of the White House. I went hoping the president would share with us what his plan was for Louisiana, Blanco said. Instead, she heard a few lines about all the country had already done for the people of the Gulf Coast before receiving a televised presidential kiss on the cheek afterward. It's time to play hardball, as I believe that's the only game Washington understands, Blanco declared one week later in a speech before the state legislature. The next day, she threatened to block oil and gas leases worth hundreds of millions to the federal treasury unless the state received its fair share of the revenues. The threat worked. It helped that the state and New Orleans had a good ally in Donald Powell. Powell, a working class kid from Amarillo, Texas, listened more than he spoke in the, his first month as the region's liaison to the White House. He met with top decision makers, but he also put on jeans and boots and talked to people he met while walking different parts of the city. I went with no preconceived thoughts, Powell said, and I realized that while Mississippi was an act of God, Louisiana was an act of God and man. On the slide, Powell was also meeting with Sean Riley of the Louisiana Recovery Authority. Together, the two of them had hatched a plan that would help make drowned-out Louisiana homeowners whole. Road Home, the governor eventually dubbed it. Under Road Home, every homeowner would receive up to $150,000 in compensation based on the pre-Katrina value of the home minus whatever insurance payments were received. A person owning a $250,000 home who received $150,000 in insurance payments would, for example, receive a check for $100,000. One week after Blanco's oil lease threat, Powell summoned Blanco and Negan to Washington for a hastily arranged press conference. There, he announced that the president would seek a $4.2 billion dollars in compensation for Louisiana homeowners on top of the state's share of the $11.5 billion in block grants Congress had appropriated at the end of 2005. Blanco used the bulk of that money, $7.5 billion, to fund Road Home. Twice, Blanco had stood up to the President of the United States and won. Despite pushback from the legislature's Black Caucus, she had acted decisively when she slashed nearly half a billion dollars from the state budget two months after Katrina. She had engineered a state takeover of New Orleans' failing schools. Yet the soft-spoken 62-year-old Blanco didn't demand the spotlight like a lot of politicians. She was who she was a matronly-looking grandmother and earnest public servant who would never act like the former mayor of New York after September 11. I'm not a guy, she told the New York Times, James Dowd that winter. 
I can't be Rudy, whatever that is. Instead of praise for strong leadership, New Orleans talk radio hosts mocked her as weepy and in over her head. Drivers applied, don't blame me, I voted for Jindal bumper stickers to their cars. When announcing the launch of Road Home in March, Blanco called it our ticket to rebuild, recover, and resume our productive place in our nation's economy. The ads the state commissioned to advertise the program called it Governor Kathleen Blanco's Road Home. People around the governor imagined putting all those five- and six-figure checks in the hands of Louisiana voters. To their mind, Road Home would cinch her re-election, but Blanco herself was dubious. I told my staff, I said, this sounds like a politician's dream to hand out cash, federal money, but I told them it's going to be miserable because there are people who are going to think it wasn't fairly done, no matter how fairly we structure it. Chapter 16 Limbo Christmas in 2005 for the McDonald's had been low-key. The children flew to Baton Rouge rather than New Orleans, the family's home base for the foreseeable future. Christmas was more somber than in years past, but the holiday also took on larger meaning. They had all survived Katrina. We had a lot to be thankful for, McDonald said. The kids joked that for once it was easy to pick out gifts for their parents who pretty much needed everything. The McDonald's tried not to think about all they had lost in the flooding, but with everyone taking snapshots it was hard not to brood over the missing photographs and memorabilia. They stored most of their pictures upstairs, but their favorites were in scrapbooks on the ground floor, destroyed with everything else. McDonald had boxes of newspaper clippings and photos along with other keepsakes. He kept the boxes in a nearby storage facility that also flooded. They tried not to think about their house in New Orleans. McDonald's seat on the mayor's panel only made him more aware of how uncertain the future was for communities such as his. Yet his insurance company was giving him until the middle of January to send them an itemized list of his house's contents. They're asking me to write down everything I had in the house and how much I paid for it, McDonald said. That's how he spent his free time during the holiday break. McDonald had agreed to serve on the Bring New Orleans Back Commission, thinking that he would help prevent the city from devising a plan that treated the hardworking poor different from others. Yet he couldn't play hero when his fellow commissioners barely even mentioned the city's hardest hit neighborhoods. Instead, McDonald focused on smaller but critical issues such as the disconnect between the pre-Katrina price of a person's home and the post-Katrina cost to make it habitable. By McDonald's calculations, a modest 1,200 square foot home in the Lower Ninth Ward was worth maybe $70,000 at the time of the storm. The same home 
in the seventh ward where he grew up might be worth $90,000. Yet the price tag for restoring either home would exceed $100,000. The spread in middle class Gentilly was disturbing too. There, a 2,500 square foot home worth maybe $200,000 before Katrina would cost roughly $250,000 to fix up. A lot of his neighbors in New Orleans East would be looking at the same problem. An estimated two-thirds of the damaged homes in New Orleans were valued at less than $125,000, but it would take a lot more than that for most to rebuild. Some of us knew if we used pre-Katrina assessments for compensating people, McDonald said, as the governor was proposing to do under road home, nobody in the black community was coming out anywhere near whole. His neighbors may have resented members of the ULI as outsiders, but McDonald saw them as a talented team of housing experts and financial wizards who could help him think through his ideas. For most of the week the ULI was in town, McDonald described himself as holed up in a hotel room with all these brilliant minds wrestling over a plan that would let people rebuild regardless of what an assessor or an assurance company had said their home was worth before the storm. The blueprint they concocted after three days and nights sought to reshape New Orleans without needing to impose a ban on anyone. Their plan included a land bank funded with federal dollars. This newly formed entity would take ownership of abandoned properties that people couldn't afford or didn't want to rebuild. The homeowners wanting to rebuild in, say, a more vulnerable section of the Lower Ninth could do so on their own using their insurance money, or they could choose a refurbished, like-size home through the land bank in a neighborhood the city wanted rebuilt. That would help guard against the jack-o'-lantern effect. McDonald went further when he imagined the city focusing its resources on a community such as Pontchartrain Park, the first subdivision in the state of Louisiana to accept black homeowners when it opened in the 1950s. The residents of Pontchartrain Park tended to be older African Americans. Some couldn't imagine living anywhere else, while others couldn't fathom starting over. The Lower Ninth Ward also had an older population. What if New Orleans used redevelopment dollars, McDonald asked, to rebuild a senior center in Pontchartrain Park? Bring in an emergency health care center, he said. A dialysis center. A walkable grocery store. You make it nice. A rec center. A movie theater. And come up with a transportation plan. Two things would happen, McDonald argued. The city would draw back residents of Pontchartrain Park who wanted to return, and officials would mollify some who felt government was angling to seize their property. McDonald's proposal was included in the Bring Back New Orleans Commission's final report. So too were ideas he contributed to its economic development and education committees. My hope at this point is that the leadership finally shows some leadership. McDonald said in February, one month after the commission's report 
had landed on Negan's desk. McDonald might even have spent more time feeling frustrated in the coming months if he didn't have a bank to rebuild. If the early days of Liberty's recovery had been about reconnecting with its customers, phase two, as McDonald took to calling it, was about taking stock. The bank's biggest vulnerability was its home loan portfolio, so McDonald created a team to track down every last mortgage holder. Once their computer systems were operational again, they could see what insurance companies a homeowner used. They requested copies of the policies which they would use to coach property owners on what they needed to say to their insurer. If the initial offer from an insurer was too low, someone with the bank would walk a loan customer through the appeals process. The bigger the settlement check for the homeowner, the less likely the bank would take a loss on a loan. Reconciling the books proved painstaking as McDonald's finance people sought to account for each check lost during the storm. The physical cleanup was endless. Liberty hired an outside crew to gut and clean its water-damaged properties, but the thankless job of sifting through waterlogged file cabinets folder by folder looking for any paperwork that had survived the flooding fell to bank employees wearing protective gear. Another enormous job had them itemizing every last item damaged in the flood for the bank's insurance company and accounting for storm-related expenses. McDonald, or his people, had been meeting with adjusters for months, he said in January, but so far we haven't gotten a single check for a single roof on a single building. Phase two was also about finding new business. Every day, more longtime customers were closing accounts because they were living nowhere close to a Liberty ATM. McDonald anticipated the bank would be losing thousands more. McDonald initiated conversations with Walmart and other big box retailers about in-store banking centers he'd end up opening just two mini-branches in Walmarts, and pursued more businesses with large corporate depositors such as Aetna and American Express, which were already Liberty customers. He also looked into the idea of opening strip mall loan centers, storefronts that would make the kind of small denomination loans Liberty specialized in early in its history. McDonald was thinking about Louisiana, but also Texas and Mississippi. Mainly, though, McDonald focused on rebuilding his battered home mortgage business, the biggest source of bank profits prior to Katrina. He hired someone to start spreading the word among mortgage brokers throughout the area that Liberty was offering 100% mortgage financing. His kids program the CDs he sold at below market interest rates had brought in an extra $10 million in cash. That's the money he used to fund these no down payment home loans. In less than three months, Liberty staff approved $10 million in home loans, a fraction of the $10 million a month they averaged prior to Katrina, but at least the bank 
was generating loan fees again and earning a higher interest rate on its money. Liberty Mortgage Team completed its assessment of its loan portfolio shortly after Christmas. An astonishing 98% of its home loan customers carried flood insurance. Staffers cheered when the mortgage department announced that very few homeowners had allowed their flood insurance to lapse. But McDonald reminded them that only meant moving on to the next battle. Now, the question will be, did they have enough coverage? The bank would also have to be patient, McDonald said, as he reminded everyone of the drawn-out battles that were all waging with their own insurance companies. The bank was buying new furniture and computers without being certain their insurance would reimburse them. They were spending tens of thousands more on the cleanup. Three times a week, they were refilling the generators that kept the air circulating inside the bank's headquarters at $150 a pop. They had also gotten bad news from Washington. McDonald's friends in high places had tried but failed to include language that would have required the feds to rely at least in part on smaller community banks such as McDonald's when dispersing the billions in recovery funds that would slosh through the Gulf Coast. Liberty would be on its own in its search for new business as would every other community bank across the region. Yet McDonald was feeling optimistic. The new year saw McDonald back in a jacket and tie. The bounce had returned to his step as he worried less about survival and focused more on rebuilding. He opened a branch in Gentilly, a middle-class black neighborhood, and people were starting to make loan payments again now that the fourth-month moratorium the bank had granted to customers in flooded parts of the city had ended. Not everyone was making regular payments again, but most were, and even most of the delinquents had worked out a payment plan. It felt like the bank's earliest days. Most people up to date on a loan, the rest wards of the bank with whom they needed to work one-on-one. -on -one. The best news of the year was a call in early January from Russell Lab, telling McDonald the lights were again on at the bank's headquarters. Lab had installed new circuit breakers in the building over the holidays and arranged for a city inspector to sign off on his work. Entergy was able to power them up only a few days later. We were the only light out there for miles, Lab said. The elevators weren't working and wouldn't until after $350,000 in repairs, but at least they could turn off the generators. They were already working with Bell South to restore the all-essential T1 line that would allow them to connect to the wider world with the new computer that had for months been sitting idle on the third floor. Along the rest of the Gulf Coast, people stared at piles of sticks that had once been their house, or they were looking skyward to thank the force that had saved them. In a waterlogged New Orleans, everything was ambiguous, starting with the question of whether to rebuild. A flooded home meant endless conversations with insurance adjusters and no clear answers about how much money could be expected. People worried about what their neighbors might do. 
where they walk away from the moldering eyesore that once was home. Every decision seemed to depend on at least ten unknowns. Were there schools? Did they still have a job? What might the federal government do about the levees? Would there be the medical facilities for the sick parent they were caring for? For themselves? Could they count on adequate fire and police protection? Only 17 of New Orleans' 122 public schools opened that January. All were charter schools staffed with a mix of seasoned teachers and newcomers to both New Orleans and the profession. More than 50 private schools had reopened by the start of the year, along with a large portion of the city's network of Catholic schools. Tulane and the University of New Orleans had reopened, and both Xavier and Southern University's New Orleans campus, two historically black colleges, were offering classes to any student able to get back to the city. Regular garbage pickup had resumed, but trucks came by once a week, not twice a week as before Katrina. Most of the refrigerators had been removed, but that only meant they were piled high in a landfill somewhere else in the city. The RTA was still running less than half its pre-Katrina routes, and even some of those were only partially restored. The green streetcars weren't running up St. Charles, and the RTA had limited rail cars operating on a small section of Canal Street. The only line they had fully restored was Riverfront, a route used primarily to move tourists between the quarter, the aquarium, and the convention center. Before the storm, the RTA had averaged around 125,000 daily riders, but that number was barely cracking 10,000 in January. We needed more riders to pay more drivers, explained Bill DeVille, who had been named the RTA's executive director for recovery after the storm. Cassandra Wall's sister, Tanji, who had moved into her warehouse district condo after Thanksgiving, started to work on her home by early March. She wasn't waiting on permission from the city or advice from the federal government. Her insurance company would pay what it would pay, and if that didn't prove enough, there might be a road home check. Her niece, Patty's oldest, was getting married that November. The ceremony would take place in an uptown church, and the reception would be at the Jackson Brewery in the quarter, but Tanji was intent on hosting the wedding party at her home. You have to remember that we made a commitment before we left Baton Rouge that we were coming back, Petit said. We didn't care how we were going to put it back, even if it meant living in it half-built and spending whatever money we could save up to pay a guy to put up a wall and then next month saving a little more to pay him to put up another. To help make rebuilding feel like a cause, their group, Eastern, New Orleans, United, and Whole, printed up black, white, and green lawn signs for people to put in front of their vacant homes. I am coming home. I will rebuild. Cassandra, however, wasn't ready. She was as angry as any of them at the way residents of New Orleans East had been treated. But to her, that was a reason for them to stay in Baton Rouge rather than rush into the unknown. 
FEMA had still not issued the new flood maps that would tell residents and businesses how high they would need to rebuild after Katrina. The agency had issued the new maps for Mississippi in November, but as January became February, became March, New Orleans and the rest of southern Louisiana still waited. Cassandra feared if her family started working on their home, they'd learn they needed to spend another $100,000 they didn't have, lifting it to qualify for flood insurance. They had remodeled shortly before Katrina. Maybe that was part of Cassandra's hesitation about coming back. On the Sunday before Katrina, they had pulled away from a freshly painted, peach-colored, two-story home with terracotta trim surrounded by a white picket fence. It had then sat in six feet of fetid water in the September heat. Cassandra had the FEMA identification number she would need whenever she needed something from the agency. She had her flood zone number, which would be crucial once FEMA released its revised maps. And, of course, she had the claim numbers and the various phone numbers for her insurance carriers. Like many in New Orleans, she carried both a homeowner's and a flood policy, which meant working with two separate entities. The company that carried her flood insurance sent an adjuster to her house in a timely fashion, she said, and two months later, she and her husband had their check $30,000, the maximum their policy paid out. She had the opposite experience with her homeowner's policy. Katrina had ripped off parts of her roof, which meant not just flood damage, but extensive water damage on the second floor. She was frustrated by how long it had taken her insurer just to get someone to her house. That first adjuster lost the photos he had taken and then apparently his job. She would need to start over again with a second one who offered her $30,000 on a $150,000 policy. That was the start of a fight that lasted nearly two years. Ultimately, their policy paid closer to $100,000. Cassandra figured she had made at least 10 trips into New Orleans to meet with adjusters or others about the house. That was about all the glimpse of life in New Orleans East she needed. The traffic lights weren't working. There were no street lights. The big Home Depot was open, as were a few car dealerships along the I-10 and a couple of fast food places with a few trucks serving Mexican food to the work crews. But that was about it. What are you going back to? She asked her sisters. In March, the couple bought a home in Baton Rouge, not far from their hotel. Cassandra made up some flyers to advertise her tutoring service. Any more big decisions would be put off until people in charge started making up their minds. The city was still in emergency mode and still producing weekly situation reports. The news wasn't always bad. By January, the city was claiming New Orleans was home to around 158,000 people, about one-third its pre-Katrina population. Government-issued trailers were starting to show up in the most damaged communities, but taken as a whole, the reports were a snapshot of a city still far from recovery. The city was now estimating that Katrina had created 
50 million cubic yards of storm-related debris. As of early February, 6 million cubic yards had been removed, 12% of the total. Countless cars still sat abandoned around the city. Streets were still barricaded. That winter and through the spring, they were still finding the occasional corpse. The newspapers carried stories about a second wave of looters working abandoned parts of the city. They picked clean the second floor of Cassandra's home, a stash that included a fur coat she was kicking herself for not taking when she saw it there in October. The Times-Picayune's Chris Rose told readers about a woman from the Ninth Ward who had, for years, done food prep at Antoine's. The crystal and china she had inherited from her mother had survived the flood, but not the looters. What kind of man picks over the bones of a destroyed life, Rose asked. The bad news seemed to come with each day's newspaper. Fixing the Superdome was essential in a football-mad city that also used the stadium to generate revenue. That was slated to cost $32 million. The airlines were still operating less than half the flights as pre-Katrina. Archdiocese shutters dozens of churches, the front page of the Times-Picayune trumpeted in February. That included St. Augustine in Treme, founded in 1841, and the paper explained the mother parish of black Catholics in New Orleans. The church would reopen after a pitched fight. That same front page carried a story about rules so laxly enforced at a city-owned landfill that reopened after Katrina that a report concluded the city might be looking at a Superfund site in the middle of Gentilly. Only six months after Katrina, already two-thirds of the charitable donations given in the name of New Orleans had been spent. The city was generating much more in sales tax, $5 million a month, than anyone had anticipated, but that still put it at less than half its pre-Katrina levels, representing tens of millions of dollars in lost revenues. The property tax bills hadn't even been sent, let alone collected on. Short of a bailout from somebody, the city was looking at a deficit of between $150 million and $200 million. We've never seen anything like this, at least not in our lifetime, Roy Ball the dean of Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University and an expert in public finance, said of New Orleans. The big law and finance firms were the first to return to the city's office towers. Those employees who didn't live uptown or on the West Bank moved in with relatives or took a hotel room. Next came larger companies that had the economic means to fix up a facility and also covered the extra costs of doing business in a disabled city. Chevron started moving its people back into New Orleans at the start of February, but only after purchasing an ambulance and hiring a paramedic in a city with an unreliable 911 system. Shell flew its thousand-person exploration and production unit back to the city later that month, but only after an extraordinary investment. Prior to Katrina, the U.S. subsidiary 
of the Royal Dutch Shell Group owned no residential properties, but it would spend $32 million on housing in the months afterwards. We bought condos, a Shell executive said. We bought a lot of single-family homes, and we leased them out at a cost to any Shell employee in need of housing. Six in ten businesses operating in the Central Business District had reopened six months after Katrina, according to Don Hutchinson, the city's economic development director. But even that figure was deceptively high. A lot of companies were moving back, only some of their workforce. Dominion Resources, for instance, a large energy company, was leaving 40% of its people in Houston. The view of the economy outside the central business district was dismal. The city had 22,000 businesses within its borders before Katrina. Six months after Katrina, 2,000 were open, Don Hutchinson said, less than one in ten. The one bright spot was the city's restaurants, yet by March, only 29% of these had reopened. The question isn't whether New Orleans is going to take a huge hit in terms of job loss, said Jay Lapierre, a local business owner who had taken the reins of the business council from Jimmy Reese. The real question is where we'll have to rebuild from once we know where we bottomed out. Nagin assembled a committee to advise him about Mardi Gras. They had plenty of reasons for canceling Carnival that year. The city had no money, yet Mardi Gras meant paying for extra police protection and overtime for the sanitation crews. Most of the city's hotels were full with relief workers, contractors, and evacuees. Some worried about how it would look if CNN showed clips of people parading down St. Charles while the city's representatives were in Washington begging for billions. The death toll alone, 1,800 across the Gulf Coast, more than 1,000 from New Orleans, might be motivation enough to cancel Mardi Gras. Yet there was never any question the city would be holding its annual Bacchanal even if shortened by a few days. Mardi Gras was good for business and it would be good for the psyche. Nagin didn't waffle. Of course they would parade. The mayor never looked more take charge than on Mardi Gras day that Tuesday, sitting atop a white horse dressed in the black beret and desert combat gear favored by Lieutenant General Russell Honoré leading the Zulu parade down St. Charles Avenue in the morning sun. The leadership running the Lakeview Civic Improvement Association started talking immediately after the storm. Al Petrie, a Lakeview Civic Board member, had fled to Houston where he worked the phones in a borrowed office. We had our first conference call five days after Katrina, Petrie said. In January, Petrie and others back in Lakeview started meeting every Friday morning at the Gulf Coast Bank branch in the neighborhood. The meetings were run by Martin Landrew and open to anyone in Lakeview, but the people who showed up on the second floor every Friday tended to be those most active in Lakeview Civic, which dated back to 1924. Landrew, a partner in a big downtown law firm, 
put himself in charge of zoning. Freddie Yoder, whom FEMA was paying to clean up Lakeview, took on infrastructure. Maybe they were meeting to prove their viability to the city, as Joe Conazaro had suggested they do, or maybe their gatherings were about devising their own recovery plans. Eventually, they created 72 subcommittees, including one that took on the task of mapping every broken street lamp in the neighborhood and another that investigated the mosquito problem caused by people's abandoned swimming pools. Context of white supremacy. That is the first audio segment. Uh, folks would like to chime in, participate, feel free. Uh, the number to dial, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-943. 9-4-3-pound. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, we stopped. We're in the middle of chapter 16. If you're following along, actually, we're a little bit past the middle part, but chapter 16, uh, when we start up for the second audio segment. Uh, if you would like to participate and you don't want to use your phone, uh, you can use the free Vope line. Uh, it should be linked uh, at the Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the link, uh, the address is tiny. T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. The address again, tiny T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Once you put in that address, uh, click the link on the left of the page. It says uh, free vote line. Uh, when you click it, it will open a small window on your screen. The first line, it's a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564 nine four three the final line it will ask for a name uh, you can put in a nickname you can use your real name uh, if you just want to click random keys that is fine as well once you get all the information entered click the green button it will connect you to the live broadcast you should be able to hear it is the same procedure if you would like to participate you'll see the dial pad on your screen Press star six. Uh, we should be able to see your hand on the screen. We'll get you on the line and you can hop in the discussion. Uh, quickly quickly uh, before I hit the phone lines, again, <clears throat> I know people uh, get excited to uh, talk about all kinds of things. Uh, number one, if you could stay within the segment that we read this week. 
the city of uh, New Orleans, the state of Louisiana, has a long, long history. We could talk about all kinds of things. Ruby Bridges, Hurricane Betsy, the Louisiana Purchase. <laughs> Depends on how far you want to go back or forward. Things that have happened more recently uh, in New Orleans. We are talking specifically about the section we covered in the book this week. Uh, if you could please not go forward, uh, the Road Home program certainly is one that will be coming up because a lot of this stuff, we have a lot of book left to cover. It's going to come up. Just stick to the section that we covered Please, if you know you're calling in and you have nothing to say about the book, which you're con- you know that your comment is not related to this at all. It's about something totally different, cupcake recipes or what you saw on the freeway earlier today. Save it until the compensatory call in that is tomorrow. You can chime in, share whatever you like. We are specifically talking about this book and <laughs> make sure we are exact the segment that we just covered that's where we are thank you kindly with that uh, we'll get to the phone lines if folks have uh, commentary feel free to chime in I'll see if uh, line see I didn't have my switchboard page open at the moment uh, Uncle Uncle, uh everybody who dialed in with a hand up should be with us feel free to chime in I think we have uh, Mr. Demery Thomas in New York I'll nab other hands as we roll Yes, sir. Happy Hurt. Yes, sir. All right. Greetings, guests. Greetings to the uh, callers, listeners. Um, Thomas, New York, and whoever else is out there. I'll start with uh, no one's mentioned. Well, I think this particular reading mentioned that there were over 1,800 deaths that had been attributed to Katrina. And, you know, 10 years later, there's still no accurate number, and which seems kind of puzzling because you would have loved ones that was looking for people lost, or you would have, you know, some way of, you know, categorically, you know, uh, logging in the dead bodies and the identities. But it just goes to show, you know, that most of these uh, deaths probably were black people, and it wasn't a whole lot of emphasis put on, you know, identification and being proper uh, burial procedures. And uh, Ray Megan and his Bring New Orleans Back Commission, you know, I, I was starting to think, you know, between this book and the one I was reading, you know, that Ray Megan wrote, he did not mention Joe Carzano at all in his book. And I thought that was strange because, you know, um, as far as the rebuilding goes, it looks as though Joe was the main guy because uh, <clears throat> the president, the federal government, FEMA, and all before they released any of this money, they wanted to have a person that they could, you know, send the money through or that would be in charge. And although Alan McDonald was 
was playing a big part and had a good proposal, <clears throat> you know, he wasn't. They did not use the local banks, you know, to distribute the funds. And uh, Ray Nagin was up on Capitol Hill. The book paints him as though he's up there begging. And they don't even plan to allow him to administer any of these funds coming down to the Gulf Coast region. Uh, I thought it was sad <clears throat> that they painted him in that light. And then again, uh, Governor Kathleen Blanco as this independent take charge type person that could stand up to the president and win, you know, and all of these good things that she was supposedly have done when she had commandeered the schools and turned all the schools and, you know, to charter and uh, basically, I guess, destroyed the educational system. Um, the LRA, the Louisiana Recovery, Recovery Authority, the ULA, the Urban Land Institute, all these studies and committees that were done <clears throat> um, to figure out how much money would be allocated to that region, and then hiring the Shaw Group, which is a multinational subcontractor that, you know, they were hired to clean up the rubbish, and it says in the book that they were getting 43,000 square foot, but they were subcontracting the work out, and by the time they got to the third contract, they was only paying $7 a square foot. So somebody was making out, you know, quite a bit of money and very little work, and it also stated that during the cleanup, uh, the night war and the mostly black areas were omitted during the cleanup. You got uh, the Shaw Group hiring pet groomers and pizza delivery guys and whoever else they could probably find to be inspectors just so that they could probably keep this money following through their companies you know, to pretend as though they were inspecting these homes. Um, one good thing about uh, Greg Medford, it sound as though, sounded as though he aided uh, some non-white people when he uh, came up with a way to get the over 50% grade on the homes that were destroyed therefore qualify a lot of black homeowners for federal aid. I thought that was noteworthy. Uh, Governor Blanco's road home uh, proposal, I believe, never planned to distribute checks correctly and that the bulk of that money would go to mostly white homeowners and that the black homeowners would be left out uh, simply because of the value of their property. All they had to do, you know, through various means of uh, degrading the property so that uh, whatever 
they were paid wouldn't be uh, proper, just as though uh, Cassandra Wall, who had a homeowner's policy, and she had flood insurance, but um, the homeowner's policy only wanted to pay her $30,000 on a $150,000 policy, and she had to fight with them for over two years, and she still didn't get the entire policy amount. And that's probably one of the, you know, lesser uh, examples because it was probably horrible examples of people losing and not being paid properly by the insurance company. Uh, kudos for Alden McDonald, who it looks like he's the hero. He's coming through with a proposal, including a land bank that would be funded by the federal government that would, you know, give people a chance to rebuild and uh, to straighten their lives out and also giving the customers a four-month moratorium for the customers that were affected by the flood in the city. You know, they mentioned that uh, Miss Walls, some of her things like fur coat and the china and all this other things, I doubt that they got compensated for a lot of their possessions unless you had pictures or sales receipts, you know, you probably uh, would catch hell getting uh, fines on that. And last but not least, uh, I think uh, six months after the flood and Katrina, Ray Nagin riding on a white horse down the street doing Mardi Gras, leading the Zulu parade on Fat Tuesday, doing Mardi Gras is just totally different to me. And I'll mute my line and give somebody else a chance. Thanks for taking the call, brother. For sure, for sure. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have a commentary? Or any of the other folks, you all want to chime in? Good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening, Mr. Demery. Um, had a few observations to make. Um, Mr. Demery's was great. Um, good evening to all the rest of the callers who are on the line as well. You know, as, um, Mr. Demery was just talking. Um, I had a few thoughts. <laughs> um, eighteen hundred deaths is what Mr. Demery said is accounted for Katrina. And I think either you read an article, but I really think it was the guest, the lady director you had on, came on the show, who said something like they filled up 25,000 caskets, you know. And then I said to myself, if 1,800 people died and they were white, it would be a memorial or a wall with 1,800 names on it. You know, I mean, talk about accountability. I mean, they'll go all out, you know, especially passing... um, the 9-11 Memorial every day, yeah, they'll go all out if this is 1,800 white people, you know. Um, and during the course of the year, they said it was 1,300 trailers, and um, it was a waiting list with 21,000 names on it to get a trailer, and um, I said, wow, you know. 
that that's that's crazy because they made it seem like everyone had a, a trailer. You know, we give us two thousand dollar check and they had a trailer, so they were just. But no, it was. I mean, that's almost twenty thousand trailers that they needed, and um, I, it didn't seem like that was the case in um Mississippi, or in um. You know, during the course of this survey, they had showed Biloxi on the news. The people had trailers next to their plot of land where their house once stood. Everyone seemed to have one. Way more than twenty, way more than thirteen hundred. Um, then um, contractors outsourced to a subcontractor, who then subcontracted to another contractor that paid people seven dollars an hour. And I'm willing to bet everything and anything I have that those jobs were maybe primarily and mostly for the blacks who just lost everything and trying to rebuild, but they could only get $7 an hour. And I'm sure that first contractor, he's probably getting $40, $50 an hour for the, for the <laughs> each person that's going to do it from the start. So, I mean, just white supremacy. I have a few thoughts. Um, you asked us earlier during the course of the reading, uh, why do we think that the author uh, has um, spent so much time talking about Mr. McDonald? Am I right, Gus? Uh, I, yeah, I think I did ask earlier on just uh, this white author coming in and, and having a black banker being the focus of the book. Yeah, I think I did ask that. And, um, you know, as, as you know, they were talking about him this evening, I was thinking, you know, maybe maybe he's focusing on this Mr. McDonald um, to humanize this black man for white readers who, you know, don't empathize with black people. You know, here's a black businessman, a bank owner, you know, a good Negro, and he's humanizing him for his white readers. And then another thought is also, um, you know, it could be a direct act of white supremacy and attempt to confuse black people who read the book because he's going to, it seems like he doesn't have the same um, good good thoughts for Mr. Megan. Um, so he's going to demonize one black man, but, you know, at the same time, you know, he's talking good about Mr. McDonald. And, um, you know, also, um, they mentioned the Superdome. <laughs> also, I've been so pondering on that because I was, I'm just shocked. Well, I was shocked that, White people didn't burn the Superdome down after this happened. You know, I mean, 90 to 80 to 90% of the NFL ticket holders are white. You know, at least here in New York, I mean, the ticket prices are expensive. And I know everything in New York is expensive. The NFL tickets are expensive. And I would imagine looking at the crowds uh, on Sunday that people in, most of the people in New Orleans are black, but. I mean, 80 to 90% of the crowd is white. That's, a, you know, they, they priced out blacks in all the football stadiums. And, um, you know, they had blacks who, I mean, all the stories of the rapes and the urine coming, dripping down the steps. I mean, all the negative stories. And I couldn't believe that, you know, these people are still going to the games here. I'm surprised they didn't just burn it down. But then I said, you know, these are white people. And um, it could be left there as a reminder to all of those victims who will probably have to pass it a few times a month or maybe every day if they worked in that area. And, you know, every time they pass it, it has to bring up those traumatic thoughts of this occurrence. You know, every time 
see that Superdome. They're thinking about the weeks they had to spend on the cotton there and the conditions and, you know, just who they lost, their loved ones, the worrying about who was missing, who wasn't there. I mean, it, it, I, I think it was left there as a reminder because I just couldn't imagine anywhere else this happened. I mean, I, I think that stadium would have been knocked down the day after everybody got out of it. You know, I just, just knowing white people, but I think they left it there as a reminder there. Uh, every time you pass yourself, your subconscious brain is bringing up a thought that you buried because it was so traumatic. And you're like, man, you know, I remember, you know, couldn't find my son. I couldn't find my daughter. My mother died, you know, anything. So um, that's all I had. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. That is definitely interesting. It reminded me of uh, the Sandy Hook shooting. They're about to be blubbering about that in a few weeks. Uh, and they tore the school down after the shooting. Uh, I guess you could say with this, since the the it was the entire city uh, that was damaged. You you can't turn down. You can't tear down the whole city. But certainly, with all the reports about everything that happened in the Superdome and uh, live babies being raped, all the lies and everything that they told and just the carnage how it was ripped up and and the toilets overflowing and all that uh, and there was talk i do remember that there was talk about doing exactly that tearing it down but i guess what a, it could have been exactly what you said would just leave it up as as a reminder to what we uh to what we did to the black people so that every time they see i know if i had been there there's no way i could ever go to a saints game or ever go in that stadium again like uh if i was a black person and i lived there like that would just be uh, a spot that I avoid uh, for the remainder of my time exactly. on the planet, exactly. the convention center as well. Um, other tidbits uh, I wanted to make sure I got in on the, the labor thing. I suspect this is going to come up later in the book. I have not checked, but I'm pretty sure this will, uh, will have to come up. If I had to bet my last nickel, I would say black people probably didn't even get those subcontracting jobs where you can get $7 an hour to go clean up or do whatever. Uh, they brought in tons of quote-unquote Latinos, undocumented, non-white people uh, to do a lot of this grunt work. Uh, and there were a lot of black people who saw that and who recognized that as just another layer of white supremacy because you had tons of black people who would have loved to get a job to help rebuild the city and get themselves back together, get some income coming in so they could take care of their family and what have you. And uh, they couldn't even get a job doing that. It was tons of black people who talked about that. They couldn't even get a job planting a tree. Like, it's not like you got to have, you know, high skills and what have you to go in and get a broom or a mop or a shovel or, you know, hold a trash bag and, and help clean. And they couldn't even do that. So, but I suspect that's going to come up, you know, down the road in the book. Um, some of the notes that I made uh, in the reading, let's see here. Mm -mm -mm. No Joe this week. I had been saying that before uh, Joe Conazaro, uh, his, uh, I don't even know what you call him. The non-white person that he is abusing, his black servant, uh, I think his name is Curtis. We didn't have a Curtis uh, mentioned this week. I don't know if he'll be back in the book uh, as we roll along. I'd asked about that last week as well. Um, let's see. Yeah, the them hiring groomers and pizza people. That's why I keep saying they did all that talking about black people looting. Black people, uh, they stole a pair of shoes or a T-shirt 
or some DVDs or whatever. Nobody loots better than white people. You want to talk about looting when you start getting these no bid contracts and I can subcontract and twiddle my thumbs and play whatever little games I have on my cell phone or be in my air conditioned office. I'm probably not even in the state of Louisiana chilling. Uh, and I've got somebody out. You can just go get up that, uh, you know, nonsense over there. I'll give you $7 an hour and we can keep it correct. That is looting. Uh, where you can go out and hire pet groomers and pizza delivery men to go out and do these assessments. And what that was a subcontract to go out and hire these people. I'll give you, you know, $10 an hour and some uh, Walmart gift cards and we'll just rake in the proceeds. And I think it's going to be more and more of that as we roll in the book. Uh, let's see other things that I thought were important. We already got that with the debris. FEMA was to blame for that as well. FEMA was also to blame for the trailers. Uh, I think that's going to come out as well. The disproportionate recovery. I think some people had mentioned that before in saying uh, Mississippi got quite a bit of damage, which is true. Even Alabama got a little bit of damage. Florida got a little bit of damage. I have consistently been focused on New Orleans specifically because there was way more damage in Louisiana and New Orleans specifically than any of the other spots. And New Orleans is much more densely populated than a lot of these other areas, which just further makes it even more glaring why they did not get the same level of resources, whether uh, federal dollars that came in or even FEMA trailers. There were way more people that were displaced. Uh, in Louisiana than any of the other places. I, I, I think I could be in error, but I think it might be. There were way more people displaced in Louisiana than all the other places combined. Uh, so that's why the focus has been there. But that, for me, is just another layer of the, the racism, white supremacy, and people that need the most help, black people, not getting it. Um, the road home, that's... I will just hush on that because that's going to come up later in the book. I will say, uh, Alden McDonald... Um, it seems like he saw what this was going to be immediately. Like as soon as he looked at it, it seemed like he recognized what the problem was going to be and that black people were just going to get ringed with them doing this plan that way. I suspect uh, that he was not the only one. He wasn't even a part of Governor Blanco's commission or the people that sat down to put that plan together. And he was able to do the math on that really quick. I'm quite sure uh, that the white people who sat down with her, I'm, I just, it's to me, it's not feasible, it's not believable that they wouldn't have known that, that they wouldn't have seen those problems. These are the type of folks that get uh, think tanks, get the best minds, the best mathematical minds to come sit down and go through all these numbers and put this together. That's just not believable to me that they wouldn't, no one would have said, well, wait a minute. Uh, don't you think some people might, you know, everybody's house is not valued the same? But that'll be coming up later. Uh, moving forward, um, doo -doo, yeah, I've got all that. Um, mm -mm -mm. Yeah, it seemed like uh, Mr. McDonald, I think that had been brought up before, Mr. McDonald, uh, is he, or just what people think about him or what have you, it seems like he's trying to do the correct thing. It seems like he's trying to help out black people as best he can from a weak position that they're working with folks so that they know what to say when they go to talk to the adjuster. Uh, if things don't work out, they're coaching them. Obviously, they have a personal vested interest uh, in all this as well. As he states, the more money that the uh, homeowners get, the less likely the bank is going to lose money uh, on their investment in all this. So certainly they have 
uh, their own personal interest. But I mean, still, I'm sure the black homeowners, I'm sure they appreciated that assistance uh, in just getting some coaching and how to talk to these people and going over the forms, which even uh, reminds me, uh, if you get when the levees broke, if you get the whole uh, DVD set just to watch, uh, if you watch the <clears throat> extra disc, it's three discs. If you get the extra disc, it has like, uh, I don't know, like an hour and a half of uh, footage. There's one portion is a white attorney, and he's talking about how he's working with all these black clients, and they're trying to get the same thing you just heard from Mr. McDonald. Got to get this paperwork. Got to go talk to the insurance. Get your flood number. Get the FEMA number, blah, blah, blah. Get all this paperwork together so you can go and, and try and beg and scrape to get resources to get your life back together. And he said, I sent the paperwork out. We're trying to sue to get money for people who lost their houses and everything. And he said about 90% of my clients, I was getting calls from people saying, I don't know what this means. I can't read this form. I don't know what this says. And he said, wow, just when you hear, as that's in the book too, that New Orleans has, and for many, many years, has had some of the worst schools ever like in the country just horrendous uh laughing stock in terms of education and it's been like that for a long time uh he said you hear that right you don't connect the dots in terms of okay so what does that mean how is that manifest in terms of how does that impact people and he said when he started getting those 90 that's what he said 90 percent of the people he's sending out the the paperwork and he said this is like time sensitive you got to get this quick i can't do anything until they fill out the paperwork boom, 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 so they got to do what they're doing when he started getting those calls and it was like, wow, that's what worst school systems in the country. That's what it looks like where you have astronomical population of black people who cannot read. Just had that in mind as well in processing all of this, everything that happened before the storm afterwards. Yeah. Anyway, uh, also thought. Uh, we, I think we talked before, Mr. McDonald, he had these white friends that were going to try to help him uh, get language written in some of the recovery bills and relief packages to make sure that uh, some of the small banks and Liberty Bank, Mr. McDonald, that they could get some of the uh, millions and billions of dollars that are going to be coming through the Gulf region. They failed. <laughs> it's good. Sometimes it could be helpful to have a white friend or two, but they we're not able to to make it happen i can only emphasize again even here in this week a lot of the stuff that uh mr mcdonald and, and the bankers were going through it just doesn't seem like the white bankers are going through all this it does not seem like they are struggling it seems like i mean yeah he's a banker we talked before and they've had you know all these luxury cars that white people make and get all this money from and going to europe for the vacations and everything all that's true but it just does not seem like he is Paul, I mean, it seems like he is having to work really, really hard, like some, I mean, just incredible obstacles in managing all this and trying to deal with all this. And just, I mean, I, I don't know what this would look like if he had just been a regular white banker, what they would do it. But it seems like he's having to labor quite a bit uh, to try to keep things together uh, with all of this. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I appreciated hearing uh, about Cassandra Wall and their family uh, trying to stick things together. I think that is going to come up as well. That's another one I can wait on because the insurance thing is is coming through. I'm I'm remembering uh, Wendell Pierce. There's so many different people that have stories about you know what they went through with the insurance companies and all of this. 
Uh, there it was. I played the audio at the beginning, and then you heard the Archdiocese shutters dozens of churches. The front page of the Times-Picayune trumpeted in February. That included St. Augustine and Treme, founded in 1841. And the paper explained the mother parish of black Catholics in New Orleans. Uh, I don't think he's going to go into more detail about that, but that is a fascinating story. I had not heard anything about it. Uh, just that little, I think it's maybe two sentences. It's not even very much in the book. And I said, oh, I'll, I made a little footnote as I was uh, reading through it before the program. And uh, then once I finished, I went and checked online. And there's a ton of material on this battle uh, with uh, St. Augustine uh, in New Orleans after Katrina, uh, where the black members of the congregation and all the stuff that they were trying to do. It's amazing. They even uh, when they shipped out the black pastor who had been there before they kicked him out, sent him, you know, wherever they, I don't, the whole way that the Catholic church operates where you have these white people who decide what's going to happen and they make decisions about things. So they send him out, they send in a new white pastor. He comes, the congregation is furious about all this. They are protesting in the church about him being there. When the white pastor comes to give his first season, uh, first sermon, they are peacefully, protesting in the church while he's giving his i mean it is amazing to see uh and it turns out that the white members who came that are making the decision about what's going to happen and replacing people and everything they came armed in the church like they were expecting you know we these negroes get rowdy we're prepared we'll pull out our farms and you know put it down it is amazing i would encourage folks if, if you want to do some more digging you can check that out they have different newspaper articles in the uh, times picayune and other spots to give more detail about this as i said there's even a documentary film it's called uh, shake the devil off that's the name of it you can get more details it is uh fascinating i don't even think that's gonna pop back up in the book um the portion where he talks about how some of these businesses uh that they started coming back to town slowly and the resources that i mean that's what i mean about the gargantuan amount of i know this is not every single white person but even if you are a white person and things worked out well enough for you that you can get a job or you have a pretty good job working at Chevron or Shell or some of these uh, other companies that were buying property and leasing them out to their employees to hook them up that way and I think the sentence with Chevron uh, where it said that they hired a paramedic in the city to take care of their employees and they purchased an ambulance I mean that is amazing uh, those type of resources. I don't think I've heard that's and that's even what I'm saying. For Mr. McDonald to hold a bank, it didn't seem like he had the resources to. Hey, we're gonna hook up uh, an ambulance and we're gonna hook up. We'll buy an apartment and lease it out so we have our employees. And boom, boom, boom. It just seems like, man, the white team, the amount of resources that they have, where they can look out for one another and make sure everything is okay. Mr. Fuller said the same thing about the fires in California right now. He said. Uh, property and things that's just not a big deal uh to racist man racist woman racist child he said i've seen this my whole life uh they could lose everything and they're just well <laughs> we lost everything but we're here we're gonna rebuild and keep it pushing <laughs> and uh I, I see the exact same thing i told him you see the exact same thing with katrina i think that's gonna gonna come through uh as we continue to read as well i didn't want to also note the callousness that was pre uh, presented about some of the white folks in lakeview and uptown and different areas that were not hit by the flood where I take that back because Lakeview was hit by the flooding, but uh, different areas, uh, predominantly white people who had some coin uh, saying, you know, 
Forget all this moratorium and waiting for four months to rebuild. Those Negroes are not coming back. Let's keep it pushing. <laughs> like, uh, just the callousness on display at all times uh, towards black life. I think that's most of the notes that I had for the first section. Um, I'll take a quick look at the footnotes, make sure I didn't miss out anything. Uh, oh, the Mardi Gras, since that was mentioned uh, this week as well. That's another one. It's almost akin to the Superdome to me. I could not imagine going to participate in Mardi Gras. Number one, the city was trashed. Like, at, uh, we're talking the spring, late winter, spring of, of 2006. The city was still trashed, literally. Uh, you didn't even have electricity uh, in a lot of parts. Uh, you didn't even have drinking water in the black areas. You didn't even have electricity and running water uh, I just I cannot imagine it was tons of black people uh, beyond Ray Megan who were ecstatic and they thought it was great they needed to have Mardi Gras it was the best thing to do uh, to bring people back and folks saying that they hadn't seen people people that they thought were dead uh, that they heard rumors that such and such drowned or didn't make it and they were able to see him at the parade so you know there were a lot of black New Orleans residents who this is what they wanted they felt it was the best thing to do and way to generate money and to show everybody that the city was still alive but I, I just could not that would be the last thing I would want to do if not being depressed about things that I lost people that I lost uh, and everything else that's going on, how are we going to rebuild? What am, what are we going to do with our life? That, I mean, I just cannot imagine. That just is, is crazy to me. But, you know, <laughs> I might be crazy as a victim of racism. Uh, other folks have uh, other comments they wanted to make sure uh, they got in before we uh, push off to the second audio segment. Can I say something about what you just spoke about? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to go into history, anything, but it just shows the power that so-called people call French programming, you know, that they have so many black Catholics in New Orleans. Um, and, you know, going to school in New Jersey, I went to Catholic school since the fifth grade. And my grammar school, there was... Everybody was black. It was, you know, it was in the middle of the ghetto, you know. So everybody was black, but it was probably two or three that actually were Catholics. Everybody else went to their regular church. And when I went to high school, it was more of a mix, you know, black, white, Latino, you know, and all the blacks were not Catholics. The only exception was Haitians. And once again, to the so-called French programming, you know, it, all the Haitians were Catholic, and you couldn't understand it. And I guess it's the same thing in New Orleans, where they have so many black Catholics, you know, because of that so-called people call French colonialization, colonializing that area. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, uh, it's it's interesting the documentary Shake the Devil Off. It's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Like I don't know if I could I could participate in any sort of uh, religious system where you have white people that they don't even hang out. They're not even part of your congregation. Like they're not even here, and they just get to dictate what it's going to be, and you got to abide, and that's just it. Um, person that uh, dialed in two four five six. Did you have commentary two four five six? Hi, I had to go to a quiet place. Um, caller from the 712, 
when you said about the schools, they had horrible schooling in New Orleans. Was that just the public schools, or was it? Did it include all schools, Catholic schools, private schools? Public schools, public schools. New Orleans education system, their public okay, school okay. education system is notoriously wretched. Has been notoriously wretched for decades. Yeah, yeah. It's it it is, and um, uh, Governor, when Governor Blanco, because you know Ray, Ray Nagin went there and he says. He, the the writer, I guess, or whatever, says that he was on. He's on his knees. He's puckering up, and then Blanco gets in there, and she's like, "Well, I'm gonna shut the the oil trade down, or what, whatever that was, whatever she did." Do you think she really though had the power to really do that? I think, I think, racist man would have over overrode her if he if he really wanted to. Um. I mean, certainly the governor position has a lot more. She has a lot more power than Ray Nagin as mayor. I mean, uh, ultimately, I would definitely think the president, the White House, federal authorities would uh, be able to do, you know, whatever. They, well, I wouldn't even say do whatever they want, but I would certainly think they should be able to uh, outmuscle uh, a Louisiana governor. But I think there have been a lot of examples of of governor white governors um, being upstarts and saying you're not going to push me around and states rights and that sort of thing and and fighting back against uh, federal authority. I think white people, white people have a long history of doing that sort of thing Um, for Ray Nagin, that portion about puckering up and all that. All that was a direct quote. That wasn't even that wasn't even. the author's language. That was what Ray Nagin was saying about himself. <laughs> I'm having to come here as, oh. as a beggar and pucker up and all this. And I hate doing it. that was all in quotations, every bit of it, every letter, every uh, syllable of that. Um, it, which to me, I think just further reinforces the power dynamics of racism, white supremacy. I think one of the things I've been saying the whole time in the book is that, you know, all the people, even anybody that wants to fuss it at Ray Nagin about his performance and all this. Ray Nagin is not a very powerful person. Uh, the mayor position generally is not uh, anywhere near as powerful as being a president or a governor or just being a white person in the system of white supremacy. Some of these different white people that have got millions of dollars, Jimmy Reese and Joseph Conazaro, all these folks that seem like they have a lot more power, I think, than Ray Nagin. But uh, he's non-white. He's a mayor. It's not so much he could basically that's, that's the position he's in as a beggar. Please come, please come help. Right. Please send troops. Please send buses. Please give it. I mean, that's that's about the size of it. That's the way we function under white supremacy. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I had to I had to bring that up though. That was. I'm sorry, I took long to um, chime in. I had to go to a quiet place. Oh, that no no problem there at all. No problem there at all. Okay, that's uh, that would be another one I would add in for any of the. Uh, but I guess since Ray Nagin got brought up, I would encourage for a good uh, chuckle uh, to check out the. Oh, I'm jumping ahead. Yeah, I'm jumping. It's it's coming up right now. It's uh, it's in the second audio clip uh, when we flip the chapter. You'll see, and then I can tell people to get the the visual aid uh, that goes along with this week. But yeah, keep all that in mind. I think the chapter that we're going into is more Ray Nagin focused for so the people. Uh, I know there were some folks that kind of took the position Ray Nagin was to blame or, you know, he 
should at least be chided because no one made it kind of the same thing people say for President Obama and other non-white people victims of racism no one put a gun to Ray Nagin's head and made him run for mayor and he didn't do a good job and he came to this and he wasn't trying to ha- help black people anyway and he did a horrible job with the evacuation and, and after the storm and trying to get help and coordinate things he was terrible probably shouldn't have been ma- I agree with all of that at the end of the day <laughs> it is white people are to blame for him being there and you'll hear more of that coming up in the in the section to come that's a, a big portion of where it's going uh anything else folks want to make sure they get in before we move forward if we missed anything or anything you wanted to respond to uh, yes i'd like to ask a question uh i'd like to uh, uh mention something about fema and it would be uh stray a little bit but i'd like to bring this point up is that <clears throat> In another book I was reading, uh, there was a guy, Zaytun, uh, David. So this guy ended up, you know, trying to help people. He figured out. Uh, Mr. Demery Four, are you there? I heard uh, it's, you said trying to help people, and then it kind of trailed off. I didn't hear you. You still with us? Looks like his line. He looks, he's still on the switchboard. Looks like. Uh, I guess the other folks. Can you all still hear me? The female caller that was just just with us, Thomas in New York. Can you all still hear hear me? I can still hear you. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure. Uh, oh, Mister Demi. It looks like he might have got dropped. I don't know if we had interference today. It looked like we did lose. It was like batches of people getting. Yeah, I hear you. Okay. Right on. Right on. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I think I don't know if we had interference today or not because it seemed like we did have people getting disconnected like at the same time, which I always think is kind of strange. We <laughs> have uh, multiple folks getting dropped all at once, but you know we'll persevere. Uh, okay, got Mr. Demi Ford back. I will nab him back with us uh, so he can pick up his his commentary. Uh, Mr. Demi Ford, you should be back with us. Go ahead, sir. Oh yes, uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. This particular guy, it turns out that FEMA, within a few days of the storm, had erected these cages in parking lots that were used to imprison people that they arrested after the mandatory evacuation. And I don't know what this book will mention later, but it's important that instead of them concentrating on saving lives, that they was erecting uh, small prisons. And one story of a 73-year-old woman that was diabetic was picked up um, and taken to this imprisoned camp, and she spent almost two weeks there, and uh, uh, she didn't do anything. She was accused of looting and... It's just horrendous the way that this situation was taken care of, and it's a lot more things that happen that we probably won't even be able to investigate. But I just thought it was interesting that FEMA would come in there and erect these uh, detention camps where they would round up people. And this particular guy I was talking about is uh, was Syrian-born, and he went through absolute hell. And he ended up 
being released because he hadn't done anything. And But basically, if you read about his life up to now, it ruined his life. He's he's a wreck. Yeah. I'll mute my line. Thanks. Mm, that was on my auxiliary reading list. Uh, I, I, I would have ended up, if I had been like, uh, if I had went to college when this, or I guess I would have had to be a little bit after this happened, um, I would have probably just got it because you can get like a degree in Katrina studies. Like they had that as a major, like you can get a degree in Katrina. I would have just done that. Like you could have, you could have studied racism in depth, all nine areas of people activity and learned tons about everything that happened uh, about Katrina, which I've said consistently black people, we should just on general principle and out of respect, black self-respect for the, uh, well, in my view, over a thousand black lives easily, easily that were lost uh, in this event. Um, we should be very knowledgeable about what happens uh, so that we can talk about it intelligently, confidently and in detail. Uh, all areas of people activity, how this played out. Uh, but that that is what I would have done. I would have got a Katrina major and. Just uh, been reading, 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 which is what I've been doing anyway. Just reading, uh, reading away. That one I didn't go to Zaytun, but I'm uh, reading Rising Tide, which is a great book. That is definitely one that I would put at the top of the list. All the people who think that the uh, levees were bombed, you should probably read that book like immediately because that does give examples of another time when levees were deliberately detonated uh, in New Orleans, documented, not contested at all. Uh, but you can check that out as well. Anywho. Uh, before we get to the second audio, have anything? Anybody else have anything else they want to make sure they got in before we get to the second audio? Great. Uh, with that, uh, I will get in quickly before we uh, transition. Number one, I feel like just doing this, I'm. Uh, <laughs> it's almost like I'm attracting uh, any and all things related to New Orleans. Like just randomly, I was checking. Uh, the fight between uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran, which took place in the 80s, uh, just going back, you know, to see what happened. And lo and behold, it was at the Superdome. <laughs> like uh, Everything related to New Orleans is just uh, flying in. And with all of the talk on Lamar Odom, I had reminded folks uh, this week that I was in Hawaii during Hurricane Katrina, and I was there for many, many months. I was there before it happened. Uh, the storm happened. I was in Hawaii, and I was there for months after it happened. Uh, if you are in Hawaii in October, uh, the Lakers have done preseason training camps in Hawaii for years, uh, years and years and years. They go to Hawaii and do training, and then they do <clears throat> preseason games normally. Uh, I saw Kobe Bryant and Lamar Odom in Hawaii <laughs> while uh, hanging out. That's what I was doing, not being on my assignment at all, paying attention. Didn't know any details about Katrina, not, you know, to the level that I do now, but wasn't paying attention as much as I should have been or focused on that. Not on my assignment. I'm chilling, <laughs> watching Kobe Bryant and Lamar Odom in Hawaii. Um, yeah, I, I had not even thought of that in years until they kept talking about Lamar Odom this weekend. And I remembered uh, Thomas in New York. Did you have anything? Or are we good to transition to uh, the second audio clip? Yeah, my call dropped, so I just called back in. Oh, right on. Cool in the gang. Uh, if you did not get a chance to comment, uh, you can just jot a note down and we should have time to 
uh, nab you once the second audio clip concludes. We are uh, kind of at the end of chapter 16, uh, and you can, if you are connected, if we're connected, friends on Facebook, uh, you can look at the image for this episode, the event this week. Man, that's where we're going with chapter 17, and just look at the way that white people clown. Uh, we will get back to the book, Gary Rivlin, Katrina, After the Flood, uh, again, Context of White Supremacy, Chapter 16, uh, just kind of get close to the end of Chapter 16 if you're following along in the book. A group from the Lower Ninth Ward met uptown every Thursday evening at a Methodist church on Carrollton Avenue. They were from Holy Cross, the better off corner of the Lower Ninth along the river, where the ground was higher and the homes generally nicer. Pam DeShield, a single mom who did contract work for Shell, was president of the Holy Cross Neighborhood Association. As her cell phone started working again after Katrina, DeShield, who had endured several weeks perched in the St. Louis home of an acquaintance she hardly knew, was running up big bills trying to track down neighbors. And when I wasn't calling, I was emailing and texting, she said. By mid-February, DeShield and two others had tracked down 300 of their neighbors, only a small fraction of those representing Holy Cross's 5,500 residents. The treasurer's report in February indicated that their homeowners association had less than $1,000 in its accounts. Yet DeShield and her neighbors were well ahead of the rest of the Lower Ninth. No New Orleans neighborhood had as many of its residents dispersed around the country as the Lower Ninth, and its residents generally did not have the means to fly in for meetings. Another factor was that people who ran the area's homeowners association were just as overwhelmed as everyone else. In mid-February, Charmaine Marchand, the area's state representative, created one. No one else was organizing, Marchand said, so I felt it fell upon me as the only elected official from the Lower Ninth to do something. So while other neighborhood organizations were counting heads and thinking about what they might say about their community to a planning body, those behind the newly minted Lower Ninth Ward Homeowners Association were writing bylaws and selecting officers. Around 85 people showed up for their first meeting held on a rainy Saturday afternoon near the end of February. This gathering, held on the second floor of the Holy Angels Academy in the Upper Ninth Ward, the parochial school Marchand had attended as a girl, was less about figuring out how to draw up a plan and more about the proper methods of mold remediation, the state of the levy system, and possible help from various governmental bodies, including FEMA, which had a representative in attendance. Rumors that the levees had been bombed came up a couple of times during a question-and-answer session, as did the charge that government negligence was responsible for their misery. This wasn't a flood, bellowed one audience member, pointing a finger at the pleasant-looking FEMA woman with a perma-smile on her face. A flood is an act of God. This was the government. The government. 
doing a bad job of building levees and destroying our homes. We have to do more, Congressman Barney Frank, the Massachusetts liberal, told a group of storm evacuees who had traveled to Washington that February for yet another congressional hearing into Katrina. I hate to have to say this about my own government, but I believe what we are seeing with regard to New Orleans and the surrounding area is a policy, frankly, of ethnic cleansing by inaction. Maybe Greg Mefford had gotten a little ahead of himself. During the lower ninth in the first months after the storm could bring out the doomsayer in anyone. The cameras rolled as Mefford walked Scott Pelly of 60 Minutes down a single street north of Claiborne Avenue a few blocks from the levee breach. The camera lingered on one house sitting cockeyed and cracked on its foundation and another that the floodwaters had split in two. Standing there in the street, Pelly asked Mefert how many houses he imagined they would have to demolish. It could go up to 50,000 homes, Mefert responded, nearly a third of the city's housing stock. That prompted Pelly to speculate that New Orleans was looking at what was likely the largest demolition project in U.S. history. It wasn't enough that all of New Orleans was worrying about the cities sending bulldozers to revert their street to swampland. Now they had to worry that bulldozers were coming because some bureaucrat had deemed their home too far gone to save. Just before the Christmas season, Mefert announced that the city had finished its block-by-block -block inspection of the flood zone. They had slapped just over 5,500 homes, not 50,000, with the red tag that Mefert said meant a structure needed to be raised as a threat to public safety. The city would bulldoze the first set of 2,500 homes over the next few weeks, Mefert said, while his people took a closer look at the remaining 3,000. The pronouncement opened a new chapter of court challenges, protests, and dueling press conferences. As in most every other hard decision in New Orleans following Katrina, individual rights were set against what the authorities thought was best for the wider community. Mefert felt misunderstood through the entire ordeal. In his mind, he was the valiant public servant moving with deliberate speed to remove rubble that was not only hazardous but stood in the way of recovery. The city had the power to demolish a home without the owner's consent, he declared, if a structure posed an imminent threat. But the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. Supreme Court had long ago said, requires the government to give people a meaningful opportunity to be heard before seizure. The majority of houses in that first batch of 2,500 were in the lower ninth, a part of the city that had been open to residents for only a few weeks at the time of Mefert's announcement. Yet with little warning, the city was sending in bulldozers. In the lower nine, we understand and recognize that many of those properties will have to be demolished, said Tracy Washington, an attorney who represented several residents and advocacy groups bringing suit. Some only wanted a chance to pick through the remains in search of any small mementos 
that might have survived the storm. Others wanted time to see for themselves if it made more sense to start over than to rebuild. A large protest formed outside City Hall two weeks after Christmas. Speaker after speaker denounced the mayor, including the city council's Oliver Thomas, who threatened to stand in front of the bulldozers himself if they tried to knock down his family home without their consent. If you're talking about my mama's house, I'm standing in front of it before you tear it down, said the hulking Thomas. You got to be a bad dude to get through me. The city avoided another protracted legal battle a few weeks into the new year by cutting a deal with those bringing suit. The city singled out over a hundred homes in the Lower Ninth that officials felt needed to be torn down immediately. Owners of these properties would have seven to ten days to challenge the city's decision. Others the city deemed in imminent danger of collapsing would have up to 30 days. As a city, we have to move beyond playing victim and we have to rebuild for everyone, Mufford said after the deal was announced. No bulldozing signs started popping up not only on homes but also on trees and surviving segments of fencing around the lower ninth. Rebuild at your own risk. That was Ray Nagin's advice on March 20th when he responded to the recommendations the Bring New Orleans Back Commission had presented to him two months earlier. Under the plan worked out by Canazaro and his committee, March 20th was to have been the deadline by which every neighborhood needed to have submitted the names of returning residents. Key components of the Canazaro blueprint were the panels of planners and other experts that would help communities as they wrestled with a plan. Those had yet to form. Still, Negan said he expected reports from each of the flood-prone neighborhoods by June 30th. Negan officially rejected Canazaro's suggestion that the city impose a temporary moratorium on work in parts of the city. That was no surprise with the election a month away. At the same time, he embraced the equally controversial suggestion made by the ULI that the city put off rebuilding the hardest hit areas, what he dubbed delayed recovery zones. If you go in those areas, God bless you, Negan said when releasing what he called his general guidelines for rebuilding. We'll try to provide you with support as best we can, but understand we're concentrating city resources in the areas that are in the immediate recovery zone. Barbara Major was among those speaking out against this idea of favoring healthier parts of New Orleans over those most devastated. Sure, planners had smart ideas for rebuilding the city more rationally, but they failed to understand a fact about neighborhoods such as the Lower Ninth Ward, Gentilly, and New Orleans East. Black people only moved there because all the high ground had been taken, she said. Chapter 17 Chocolate City Louis Farrakhan, the Nation of Islam leader, was in New Orleans for the long Martin Luther King Jr. weekend to speak 
at what his organization was calling a Black Family Summit. Weeks earlier, Negan had promised the local Baptist church where the event was to be held would have electricity, but at the last minute, Farrakhan's people needed an alternative venue. Four months after Katrina, even the mayor didn't have the clout to turn on the lights in a church only minimally damaged by the storm. The hotels in New Orleans were running at capacity that weekend. Evacuees were in town for an event sponsored by the city's big social aid and pleasure clubs, which have been fixtures of the city's black community dating back to Reconstruction. A group of them had joined together to put on a giant second line, a New Orleans tradition where groups of musicians led revelers through the streets. They would be parading through Treme that Sunday on King's birthday. Thousands had traveled home to New Orleans at least for the night. We're coming home, the revelers started chanting. We're back. Yet just as the musicians stopped playing, gunfire broke out. Three people were brought to the hospital for gunshot wounds. Farrakhan and Nagin met later that night in the minister's suite in the Windsor Court. There, inside one of the city's pricier hotels, the two spoke about the shooting, but their main focus was the black diaspora, the hundreds of thousands of New Orleanians living elsewhere. This man, whose words had proven so inspiring to Nagin a decade earlier, implored the mayor to bring his people home. It's your obligation as an African-American mayor, Farrakhan counseled, to make sure New Orleans remains a black city. The two spoke for nearly three hours. Nagin had a light schedule on the Monday holiday, just a morning ceremony at City Hall. There, Nagin would say a few words to honor Dr. King. Long ago, his communications director had abandoned the idea that the mayor might deliver a speech if one of her people wrote it for him. Or Ray, Sally Foreman said, there was no greater sin than sounding scripted. He was an elected official more interested in leaving a lasting impression, Foreman said, than presenting any memorable ideas. She had delivered a typed out list of suggested bullet points to his office, but even then there was no telling if they would be used. His tendency to go off message had even become something of a public game between them. Sally's going to need the smelling salts for this one, Nagin would say from the podium. But the mayor had a more serious point to make. Don't make me speak all English, Nagin snapped at Foreman early in their relationship. Don't make me look weak. Mitch Landrew, the lieutenant governor, was at City Hall that morning. Impossible to miss, he stood near the podium with a fussing baby in his arms. It had always been personal between Nagin and Landrew, as the latter seemed bothered by the mayor's slights of his sister Mary. Just before Katrina, Nagin ran into Landrew at an event. Mitch got right up to Ray, yelling at him, Foreman said, I really thought it was going to end in a fistfight. A widespread rumor had Landrew running for mayor against Nagin that April. Others around Nagin thought that his late-night meeting with Farrakhan 
explained the speech the mayor gave that day. Foreman, however, believed it was the pending election that inspired her boss to make the impromptu decision that he's not going to offer the same old with Mitch standing there. Negan, dressed in an open-collared striped shirt, wore a black armband around one bicep. I greet you all in the spirit of peace this morning, Negan began, addressing the majority black audience. I greet you all in the spirit of love this morning, and more importantly, I greet you all in the spirit of unity. People looked at one another, puzzled. This was not a Ray Nagin any of them knew. He could talk about what made King great, Nagin told the crowd, but instead he wanted to tell them about his conversation that morning with the slain civil rights leader. I just wanted to know what would he think if he looked down today? What would he think about Katrina? The mayor brought up Gretna in his imagined conversation. I said, Mr. King, when they were marching across the Mississippi River Bridge and they were met at the parish line with attack dogs and machine guns firing shots over their heads. He brought up the suffering at the Superdome and Convention Center and also the knuckleheads who pull out some guns and start firing into the crowd. With each incident, King expressed his disappointment via Nagin. And Dr. King said, I wouldn't like that. Nagin isn't one for long speeches. He mentioned black-on-black crime and the decline of the African-American family and then got to his point, echoing the theme of self-reliance that Farrakhan and his acolytes had been preaching all weekend. It would fall on the black community to help itself. God is mad at America, Negan said. He's sending hurricane after hurricane after hurricane, and it's destroying and putting stress on this country. Surely he's not approving of us being in Iraq under false pretenses. But surely he's upset at black America also. We're not taking care of ourselves. We're not taking care of our women. And we're not taking care of our children when you have a community where 70% of its children are being born to one parent. We ask black people, it's time. It's time for us to come together. It's time for us to rebuild a New Orleans, the one that should be a chocolate New Orleans. And I don't care what people are saying uptown or wherever they are. This city will be chocolate at the end of the day. And then he added, this city will be a majority African-American city. It's the way God wants it to be. You can't have New Orleans no other way. It wouldn't be New Orleans. After a smattering of applause, a self-conscious Negan concluded, So before I get into too much more trouble, I'm just going to tell you in my closing conversation with Dr. King, he said, I never worried about the bad people who were doing all the violence during the civil rights time. He said, I worried about the good folks 
that didn't say anything or didn't do anything when they knew what they had to do. Sally Foreman didn't think it was a big deal when Negan referred to New Orleans as a chocolate city. He had used the phrase before and nobody had ever cared. I don't think Ray had any idea it would blow up like that, she said. But Negan's expensive campaign consultant, Jim Carvin, knew. Carvin had been on the winning side of six consecutive mayoral contests in New Orleans, including Negan in 2002, but Negan's speech left Carvin wondering about his chances at number seven. It's always difficult when your candidate says something without discussing it with you, a droll Carvin says in the film Race, a documentary by Catherine Cecil about the 2006 New Orleans city election. It was strictly shoot-from-the-hip Ray Negan. Within hours of Negan's speech, the cable news stations were carrying the story that the mayor of hurricane-ravaged New Orleans had just described Katrina as God's wrath. Soon, the chocolate New Orleans line replaced the God theme. That line dominated the news for weeks. Within days, it seemed every tourist shop and street vendor in town was selling a t-shirt depicting Negan as Willy Wonka and New Orleans as a chocolate factory. One version, now with 50% more nuts. It's part of our culture to talk about chocolate cities, Negan told CNN the day after his speech. He mentioned the song Chocolate City, George Clinton and Parliament's Ode to Washington, D.C. Washington was the country's first chocolate city, Negan explained, followed by Newark, Detroit, and New Orleans. Negan would apologize for his comments, but only up to a point. I crossed the line when I brought God into the discussion, he confessed to the New Orleans Tribune. But I see no problem talking about New Orleans remaining diverse. Uptown saw Chocolate City as the end of Negan. He was no longer the erratic mayor who maligned his own city by exaggerating the crimes that occurred after Katrina and then flip-flopped and stalled whenever he needed to make a decision. Now he was the buffoon. Congress can finally stop accusing us of being corrupt, wrote Clancy DuBose, the chief political writer for the Gambit, the city's alternative weekly. Negan has finally given them a fresh argument that we're stupid, incompetent, and led by a mindless racist. Polls revealed a black New Orleans split over Negan's speech. 82% of the poll's respondents said they weren't offended by the Chocolate City reference, though a majority agreed that he could have said it better. 59% of blacks said they had a favorable view of Negan compared to 13% for Bush, 24% for FEMA, and 40% for Blanco. Warren Bell, a lifelong New Orleanian, who had been the city's first black news anchor on local network TV, thought the whole event had been overblown. New Orleanians referred to this as a chocolate city, Bell said. Certainly, the chocolate people did. Bell, who by that time was working in the president's office at Xavier, was no fan of Ray Negan's, 
but he also viewed the mayor's reference, whether deliberate or not, as a brilliant political stroke. A way for the mayor to use his megaphone to signal to his African-American constituents scattered across the country that he supported their right to return. The people for whom that was designed to appeal are glad he said it, Bell said. I think that endeared him to more black voters. Incumbent mayors don't lose in New Orleans. Clancy DuBose, the political writer, searched back 60 years to find the last sitting New Orleans mayor denied a second term. But then it had been a hundred years since a city had been devastated like New Orleans. San Francisco, 1906. Galveston, 1900. Six months earlier, Negan was sitting on a $1.3 million campaign war chest and looking at what DuBose dismissed as nuisance opposition. Post-Katrina, 23 people filed to run against Negan. A 20-ring political circus, the Washington Post said of this election taking place at the end of April, eight months after the flood. A real estate appraiser joined the race, as did a radio DJ, an aircraft mechanic, a paralegal, and two preachers. Manny Chevrolet Bruno, who ran against Nagin in 2002, was also a candidate. The motto of this unemployed actor, working as a bookstore clerk, was a troubled man for troubled times. He proposed that the city legalize hashish and create a red-light district like Amsterdam's to pay for a state-of-the-art levy system. He suggested polygamy as a solution to the city's repopulation problem. Even one of Nagin's former chiefs of staff, his former chief administration officer in the local parlance, announced her candidacy. Most of Nagin's 21 challengers were white. That was no surprise to Lance Hill, who described the 2006 mayor's race as the white community's best opportunity in 30 years to take back political control of New Orleans. It wasn't just an academic from Tulane seeing it that way. There's a lot of people in the black community, City Council President Oliver Thomas said, saying that people in the white community are trying to pile on. Even evacuees around the country could see for themselves what was happening during an election covered by CNN, Fox, and MSNBC as if it were a national election. Chris Matthews would serve as co-moderator at the last big debate broadcast nationally by MSNBC before the election runoff. Ron Foreman, who had announced his candidacy a few months before election day, was the early favorite. He had the Times-Picayune's endorsement. He also had the money, which he'd made sure to line up before entering the race. I told them, look guys, I don't have the wealth, Foreman said. If I'm going to step up, you have to step up with me. Three days later, he said he had raised $2.5 million. Like in Night of the Living Dead, Foreman joked, people just keep showing up at my door each night carrying stacks of checks, each one of them for $5,000. Pre-Katrina, Boise Bollinger, 
donated $5,000 to Nagin's re-election campaign. But then, various subsidiaries of his, Bollinger Gulf Repair, Bollinger Marine Fabricators, gave another $45,000 to Foreman that winter. Jimmy Reese and his spouse also gave Foreman $10,000 between them, and Reese served as a chief Foreman fundraiser. For Reese, his efforts served as penance for any role he had played in the creation of Ray Nagin. Absolutely the wrong guy for the job at the moment, Reese said. The plan to seize back control of City Hall seemed on track. Then, Mitch Landrew entered the race. It had been an agonizing few months for Ron Foreman, starting with the disintegration of his relationship with Nagin. The core group of people I work and socialize with are more the wealthy, the business leaders, the philanthropic community, Foreman said. I was raised guy-guy-guy-guy-guy-to-to-dam. He stopped defending Nagin around October, but it was one thing to let someone know you're disappointed in him and another to announce that you intend to take his job. He even sat down with Mitch Landrew to try to convince him to enter the race. But he tells me, I think I can do more good in Baton Rouge than New Orleans, Foreman said. And I believed him. Even after talking with Landrew, Foreman facilitated. I told one person yes, but then I'd tell someone else no. Sally Foreman informed her boss what was happening shortly after the Chocolate City speech. I told the mayor, unbeknownst to me, my husband has decided he's running against you. The resignation letter she released to the media stressed the respect she had for Nagin, but privately she confided to people that the end couldn't come soon enough. Ray started to mistrust people around him and some crazy things started to happen, she said. He started fighting. There were lines being drawn. Ron Foreman might have been the candidate of the Uptown Blue Bloods, but he wasn't one of them. His father was a welder, his mother a bookkeeper. He was a Jew in a community known to harbor anti-Semitism. Worse, after earning an MBA at Tulane, he went to work for Mayor Moon Landrew, a figure cursed up and down St. Charles Avenue, the liberal who had handed the city over to the blacks. But after two years of working for Moon Landrew, Foreman was put in charge of the city's zoo, a place so bad the New York Times had described it as a ghetto for animals. He'd earned the business community's gratitude by transforming it into one of the city's crown jewels. The zoo, along with the aquarium, which had been born under Foreman's tutelage, paid for by a tax on the city's homeowners, attracted more than three million visitors a year, and Foreman was helping make everyone rich. A likable, large-featured man, always quick with a quip, he was invited to join Rex and became a fixture at events wherever the privileged and well-connected gathered. If you were mayor or in the council, you were my friend, he said. Foreman pitied Negan, whom he considered a friend. We needed a Giuliani, but that wasn't Ray. He had to live with that each day, and it took its toll. It had once been a joke 
between Foreman and Sally, the mayor's tendency to describe himself as percolating on a problem. But it was no longer funny. I'm not trying to sound heroic, but someone had to pick up the flag that Ray had left lying on the ground, Foreman said. Running against Negan felt awkward, but squaring off against Landrew left Foreman feeling torn to pieces. Moon had been an early mentor. Moon's wife, Verna, chaired the zoo board. Foreman had known Mitch since the younger Landrew was a boy. His mother, Verna, would bring him to meetings and he'd run around the boardroom up on everything Foreman said. He was wild. Foreman was a fan of Mitch Landrew, the politician who always knew he could count on a campaign contribution from Ron Foreman. This is someone I've been supportive of his whole career, Foreman said. Foreman thought about dropping out. He even broached the topic with some of his backers. But by that point, I had already spent $300,000 or $400,000 of their money, he said. I had made these commitments. He hoped his money and his message, bundled with the Times-Picayune's endorsement, would secure him a spot in the runoff against Negan or Landrew. And that is where we will pick up at next week. Uh, Moving forward, beyond the halfway point, hopefully folks are getting constructive information. My joke was, if we are friends on Facebook, you can look at the photo for the event uh, for this particular episode and you will see Ray Nagin uh, one of the many 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 memes that they did of Ray Nagin and his chocolate city uh, comment uh, white people love getting their giggles at the expense of black people with that context of white supremacy the number to dial 641 715 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us we should have about 30 minutes left please do not wait until the last minute if you would like to participate feel free Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, this was, uh, well, I won't say it was comical, but, it, it, you know, it's just sad, really. And uh, starting off with the meeting that uh, Ray Nagin had with Louis Farrakhan, uh, of, you know, the leader of the nation of Islam, the Black Family Summit, you know, and you got to get the picture in your head, is the leader of the Nation of Islam talking to a Catholic, a Black Catholic mayor of New Orleans, and they're discussing the plight of Black people in New Orleans. And the place that they were supposed to have this summit, the mayor didn't even have enough clout to get the lights turned on four months after 
the storm. It's just, it's really a sad uh, scenario. But I think that that uh, meeting may have had some influence on uh, Mayor Megan because, you know, when he was giving his uh, speech and um, after he spoke to uh, Minister Farrakhan, he made a speech and he was addressing a mostly black uh, audience, you know, talking about, I greet you in the spirit of unity. Everybody started looking around at each other, right? Is this really Ray Nagin that's talking here? Gives you an idea that uh, he had the impression that he didn't really have, you know, black people's best interests at heart. Then he goes on to make this his famous uh, Chocolate City speech that I'll give uh, someone else a chance to uh, comment on that because uh, I think he was going after the uh, black uh, <clears throat> consensus before the election, but it may have uh, backfired on him because of his uh, previous uh, endeavors. Then, right after the speech, you know, it's like 21 challenges to the mayor's office. And then <clears throat> when uh, this guy, Lance Hill, started uh, describing the mayor's race, you know, as the white community's best opportunity to take back the political control of North of New Orleans, that taking back is uh, cold for white supremacy. You hear it a lot now, taking the country back and all of this. And I think, let's see, Ron Foreman, I think um, <clears throat> his wife was working for Ray Nagin at the time, and then when he decided to throw his hat into the race, then uh, she resigned. Another thing is uh, old Boise Buckinger donating $5,000 to Ray Nagin's re-election and then giving 45000 to Foreman. You know, it kind of sums it all up there. And then the... Can I still be here? Uh, yes, sir. I think uh, somebody... I don't know if they got a call or whatever, but feel free. Go ahead, sir. Sorry about that. Okay. But after two years of uh, working for Moon Landau, Foreman was put in charge of City Zoo, a place so bad the New York Times described it as a ghetto for animals. You know, it just, it never ceased to amaze you of, you know, the, the way that these people practice racism and the way that money is tossed around and investment in order to, uh, to get their candidate in office. And in the white communities, uh, mindset, racism was done, I think, by this time. And I think his Chocolate City speech had a lot to do with it. But I'll mute my line and give somebody else a chance. Thanks for taking the call. Right, right, right. Uh, 
other folks that uh, have a hand up, if you have uh, comments you would like to share, please don't wait till the last minute. Everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Hey, I'm Thomas from New York. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, um, man, that was, you talk about the slaughter, the, 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 the threat of white supremacy, um, over us like the slaughter damn cool. I think when you call it the zoo, a ghetto for animals, man, that top tower, man, that's crazy. It's so bad. Um, um, yeah, so, and then what, uh, what this whole chapter pointed out to me, in, in my opinion, well, I get the impression that this was planned, um, from the start, and it, 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 it was, I mean, like, they had it all mapped out what, what was going to be done, what, what houses were going to be kept. I mean, I think this was done way in advance, you know, so, um, when they, when it was time to put the plan in motion and people wanted to slow it down, it's like, what are you slowing it down for? You know, when you've already had this plan so far, and it's probably 20, 30, 40 years before, you know, all types of, like you said earlier, um, the best think tanks in the world, you know, what, you know, they knew a, a, a hurricane was going to come one day. They knew those levees weren't going to breach. If, if it wasn't deliberately done, it was going to be done because they weren't built properly. So this plan to get rid of people, what was going to be done for the houses, how much money they were going to get, it was already put in motion the, the second the storm hit. That's what I think. And I think that this, these chapters show some of the key players in um, acting out those plans. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, good evening, guys. Good evening, uh, Thomas. Uh, Thomas Smith in New York, uh, Danny Ford, and uh, everyone else who's, who's calling in. I did have a couple of things I thought about. To me, this section really highlights um, something that you bring, bring up quite often, Gus, in regards to um, not blaming the non-white person who's supposedly in power for some of the, for the things that take place um, under the system of white supremacy. Um, this is a brilliant treatise on, um, uh, Pam actually coined this term in the Children's Hooks book of, of uh, Ray Megan being a pet Negro. And when he stopped being the pet, they tur- everybody turned on him. Even people in his cabinet turned on him. Um, so it really goes to show you that any supposed power he had was only the power that they allowed him to have. And when he was no longer uh, a good Negro, they got rid of him. And essentially, I looked at uh, the Chapter City comment almost like him uh, uh, being, becoming or uh, understanding the fact that he was no longer their pet Negro and kind of drew a line in the sand where he tried to jump back on the black side of things. And it was already too late. And to me, the, uh, the invitation or the discussion we had with Farrakhan really, to me, reminded me of Arsenio Hall, when Arsenio Hall was about to have his last episode, um, and he just went out with a bang and just had to come on the show, because he knew after that it was a wrap. It was almost, to me, it was a similar kind of a situation with Ray Megan, and um, it's, it's, he really just has very little power. He made a lot of dumb choices, you know, and it, it doesn't exonerate him for the things that he had done for himself that he had direct control of. But the vast majority of that situation was completely puppet mastery by the white supremacists. And then something you brought up, too, um, in the last segment about uh, the illiteracy of the people uh, trying to read the different uh, contracts and, and uh, legal documents to fill them out in order to facilitate trying to get some resolution to, you know, the horrible situation that they're going through and the fact that they couldn't read. 
And to me, um, it really puts a face to the statistics. It's one thing when you hear numbers of people and how, you know, this is statistics on how many people can't read, especially in, in the African-American community. But most importantly, the fact that in this situation, it's kind of putting a face on those numbers. And because I remember being in school and seeing people getting passed, you know, just being passed through, you knew they couldn't read, but they were just giving them a passing grade just to get them out of the class. And these were all black people. So, um, and that was something that I personally saw. So to actually see this outlined in the book, that the lawyer, you know, it really hit home for him when he started getting these calls from these people saying they couldn't read the documentation to help themselves. It just speaks volumes to the work that we have to do to try and overcome the system. And it's really going to take us. We have no friends. We have nobody from any other group we can look to to help or help but ourselves. And until we understand that, we're going to continue to be in the muck and mire. Thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, anybody else had a hand up, uh, had comments they want to make sure they got in? Um, good evening, everyone. Good evening, Derek. And good evening to all of the um, book club members. It's karma. I, um, <clears throat> did I, I, I wasn't totally focused, but did, did the minute he started, um, did he, when he started saying, you know, let's do some things for black people, did they start calling him a racist? After the uh, Chocolate City speech, uh, he didn't the chocolate, after the Chocolate City comment, they started calling him. A, white people started calling Ray Nagin a, a racist. Right. And so they they started calling him stupid first, and then they went to racist. Or was it racist first, and then they went to stupid? Uh, I think there had been other comments before it got to that, where people were saying that he was not competent, and they didn't think he was adequate for the job. And then the Chocolate City. That's when it really intensified and then in addition to all that and he's racist okay because you know that that and i'm noticing that this really never changes that that tactic when they decide to go after black people in office it, it doesn't really change so the first thing is you're incompetent and then the next thing is you're racist so okay i'm, I'm gonna keep an, i'm gonna keep an eye on that that's very interesting and then the other thing I wanted to ask you guys, because you guys have such great minds, um, is there anything that the black people could have done to head off some of this ethnic cleansing and massive land grab? Is there anything just once we could have done? Something. If we could have been a little faster with anything and I'm not talking about you know being prepared for the hurricane because you don't even need a hurricane or you, they will use any situation for land grab you know presidential library anything is there anything that black people have available to them that they can use in the beginning that doesn't won't take so much force so much money to head off these land grabs I know Mr. Fuller would say uh, with regards to white people taking property, I guess anything else, but specifically with property, houses, that sort of thing, he would say uh, be prepared to move, uh, that it's probably not a whole lot you're going to be able to do about it if white people decide that they want your house or they want your land, property, whatever it happens to be. It's probably not going to be a whole lot you can do about it. I think within the context of this, um, I mean, it's I don't really know what you could do in this situation. I mean, you got 
it was 15 feet of flood water in some areas. I mean, you you would have had to. I don't even know how you would have been able to stay on your property in that. And then for some people, you would have had to be gone for so long. Like they were saying, for some people in some areas, they didn't allow black people back in the area until December. That's three months later. I mean, and then if you don't have resources to do anything, I mean, it man, it just uh, within the context of this, it seems particularly um pitiful and helpless not you know pitiful in a bad but just like man i don't i don't really know how this is going to work out well uh in the context of this situation uh and in in most others this is going to be an uphill battle for the most part if white people want your property they're going to get it <laughs> the evidence has shown unless unless i'm in error does somebody have suggestions or thoughts yeah i have a suggestion i mean i think during the course of the meeting she's laid out a lot of things that could have been done but it's just that, like I just said, it was planned so far to this. I think that they created the conditions that the people were in Atlanta, they're in Houston, and Baton Rouge, they're in Utah. They can't get back in time to put this claim in. They, they can't, they don't have the resources. Um, they, they, there's no electricity. You know, what are you coming back to? You're in Houston right now. You got you got running water. You got electricity. I mean, they created the conditions to make it, as impossible to come back as possible. And even anything that, even if you did everything to come back, you're coming back to no running water, no electricity for months, years. I mean, you're coming back to um, criminal element, probably worse, less police, there's less, there's less resources for that neighborhood. Uh, I think he made it very clear that he wasn't allocating, go back there to own this. You know, we're, we're our... The number one priority as a city to govern is this area here, not that area. Um, and I, I think that it, it, they created so many conditions that didn't allow for them to, to take advantage of the things that I'm sure white people took advantage to get back, to get things done. So you don't, you don't think it's, it's beforehand or, or the minute it started, Someone had said, white people are coming to take everything you own, kill all of your family members you don't keep your eyes on, and they're going to declare war on you and make sure that you are, you are homeless. You don't think if you told them beforehand, this is what white people are going to do. They will declare war on you the minute the first drop of rain falls. You don't think that might have helped a little bit? I don't. Uh, I, I think just, we all we all know that now, and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, they they're, they're the most powerful people. That's all. They they still grabbing land. I mean, we there's a lot of people who just never thought of it that way. But uh, you don't think that would have helped? I just I think that would have helped a little bit. I don't think so because I think black people would not have believed you. Um, I, I think we haven't learned from history, and I think nobody at that time, at that point, would have thought they were capable of what they actually did. And as it started to unfold, um, and things just happened to get worse and worse and worse, um, you got to hear more about it. But in the beginning, everybody thought there was going to be this big rescue, and people thought they were going to get help. And I think if anybody mentioned before, beforehand that they were going to use this as a, a means to just or create the largest mass displacement of black people since the Civil War, you know, you know, no one would have believed that beforehand. And now that it's happened, I think we have those of us that are smart 
have an understanding of what to expect in an event like this, or God forbid something like this happening to another big city with a lot of black people in it. But we never had the historical backdrop. Now this is a part of history for, for us to learn from, and if we don't, it's going to happen again. That's pretty much what I think it is. No one would have listened to anybody who said that. We, it, black people don't listen to other black people when it comes to telling on white people. If a white person told, told them that, maybe they would have listened. But if it was a black person, uh-uh. They would not have believed them. Uh, folks can ponder if you want to get another response in before we wrap up. If you want to take a minute or so to, to think, uh, even if you get the information, it's, for me, it would still come down to, okay, so what are you going to do uh, in terms of either keeping your house or saving your life? If it's saving your life, I think definitely uh, you could get more information about the type of things that happen in these situations to do that. But in terms of just your your property, I don't I don't really know if it's a whole lot you're going to be able to do on that front um, some of the notes I did want to make sure I got, and then, like I said, if folks have any other any other thing else later, they want to make sure they get in or respond to that. We should have time for that too. Um, quick notes that I had from the chapter, um, just that right there. They got that in the chapter about uh, people in the ninth ward. They didn't have uh, the resources to come fly into all these meetings and participate. They're stuck in Houston. They're stuck in Utah. They're in New York. They're in Washington State. They're all over the place just didn't have the means uh, to be able to do that even getting back and forth we heard that earlier commuting from Baton Rouge back to New Orleans could be challenging with traffic and everything else that was going on uh, some of the other stuff that I had man if anybody ends up at any of the debates and you get a chance to ask Barney Frank anything ask him what he thinks about the ethnic cleansing that took place like uh I stopped like, whoa, is that correct? <laughs> like uh, The passage where they got Barney Frank, where he says, uh, I hate to have to say this about my own government, but I believe what we are seeing with regard to New Orleans and the surrounding area is a policy, frankly, of ethnic cleansing by inaction. Whoa, I'm going to get him to say that again and give us your update uh, on that, Mr. Frank, now that you're uh, running for... Oh, oh, it's not... Oh, I was confused. I was thinking that was... Uh, my man that's running for president right now. At any rate, I would still want uh, Bernie Frank to give us his uh, assessment 10 years out that he, he said that at the time. That's pretty, uh, like, well, I suspect you probably even get, I could maybe even track that down to see exactly where he where he said that at. Um, let's see, what else did I have? The comment where uh, the city of, boy, I'm just trying to figure out I got the right agency where they said we have to start. Hey. Got disconnected. Oh, oh hang on a second. Hey, I'm taking my okay. spot down. <laughs> Got disconnected. Um, the spot where uh, Greg Mafert says we have to stop, we have to move beyond playing the victim, that really stood out to me because white people say that to us all the time. Uh, we've had enough of that. Can't be playing the victim. Uh, we got to move forward, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and all that. It's doubly uh, ironic or profound that it came from Greg Mafford. I can't hop ahead in the book, but man, like, uh, to have white racists and criminals talking to you in this sort of manner is just, oh, my God. Uh, moving forward, uh, other things that were important, I thought. Uh, they continue to emphasize rebuilding the hardest hit areas last, which is total opposite. I brought that up before Mr. Fuller and he's and just logic. It's not even Mr. Fuller, the logic that is generally in place. You help people that need help the most. You get them first. They're doing the exact opposite here. Uh, let's see. Chocolate City. I think that was totally poli- I, in my view. I think Ray Negan, I think he saw what was happening behind the scenes where his white 
uh, core supporters, the people that were bankrolling him, I was saying, you know, you're incompetent, you're done. <laughs> keep it. You and the rest of the Negroes here can uh, keep it pushing. You can evacuate with them. Uh, and I think that's why he made a switch. If you remember, he kind of came into office. White people were using him uh, to control what was going to happen there. We'll use you. Ray Nagin possibly being showcased uh, in this role so white people can run the city through him. Now we're not going to do that. We'll just do it directly. We don't need you anymore. And I think that's why he made the pivot total uh, political move. I can repeat what I said when Pam was on the program, the pet Negro, that is name calling. I definitely would not encourage uh, doing that because it's just name calling another uh, victim of racism and even not even referencing them as a human generally pets are animals uh, and i just i said that on the program i said that to her she had the yeah it is kind of name calling uh the next uh, still in chapter seven uh this meeting with farrakhan i thought that was kind of wild uh, the timing matching up with everything that's going on right now with the justice or else march um find it hard to believe the person that that uh, we've been hearing about Ray Nagin would be that enamored with uh, Lewis, Minister Louis Farrakhan. He's Catholic. He's got all of his white pals and what have you. Just that strikes me as a bit odd that he would be that enamored with uh, Minister Farrakhan. But all right. Um, the thing about Mitch Landrew, where it says uh, he and Ray Nagin almost came to blows. He was upset about Ray Nagin saying something about his uh, sister Mary. Um, I don't know what he said. He didn't include the details for that. I know at the time she was state senator. She just lost her, mm-hmm. uh, not state senator, she was a U.S. senator. She lost her seat uh, at the end of 2014. But at the time she was a U.S. senator, if he was critiquing what she was doing in her role as a senator, uh, I don't know why that would have been incorrect. I think that's standard. Uh, anybody, if you hold public office, you are supposed to be criticized, scrutinized. That comes with the territory. So I don't know what all that was about. I would have uh, appreciated they give more details about what exactly uh, Mr. Nagin supposedly said. Uh, they got Mitch Landry so upset. Um, yeah, the comments. Uh, <laughs> I am no fan of Ray Nagin. I've said that before and the speech that. Man, keep it moving. Victim of racism. Um, the thing about D.C. being the first chocolate city, I thought that was also pretty pretty wild on the timing because they had a big article in the Washington Post about Washington, D.C. no longer being chocolate city. That was just in the Washington Post today. Um, yeah, they called him a buffoon and a racist. I, I'm cracking up. I, this, uh, I think the caller mentioned it before, this is one of the best illustrations when people will start really digging in on other black people and blaming them. I have never seen an incident where you have the white people named. Bam, you could just go down and list people. Jimmy Reese, uh, Alfon- what is, uh, Alfonso, I'm forgetting his name, but he worked with the Times Picayune. He was one of the people who bankrolled him and was responsible directly, indirectly for the Times Picayune giving Ray Nagin an endorsement when he won initially in 2002. The gambit, they came out and talked all this trash. Uh, about him saying Nate, uh, Nagin has finally given them a fresh argument that we're stupid and competent and led by a mindless racist. That's a direct uh, direct quote uh, from one of the chief political writers at the Gambit. They endorsed Ray Nagin too in 2002. That's what I mean. That is absurd. It's no way you can be a white person. You put this person in charge. It's, Ray Nagin would never have been mayor if it was not for white people like Clancy Dubow, Jimmy Reese, Alfonso Ells, 
uh, the rest of these white people that voted for him, put him in all, Boise, uh, Bollinger, all of these white people and probably others that have not been named, you put him in office. This is your, in my view, you are most to blame. You don't get to put him there and you know he's not qualified. You know he's never held political office, but you want him there so you can subvert black Democratic voters in New Orleans, and then he's not qualified. You don't like what he's doing now. We're just going to throw him under the bus and talk about how dumb and stupid and incompetent he is, and we need to move on. No, white people do that sort of trifling and tacky stuff all the time. I would take this exact chapter and put all these people's names up so that anytime this conversation comes up, the blame should go where it And even with what happened in Katrina, these people should be to blame. Maybe if we had a more competent mayor, someone who had some political experience, things would have been a little bit better uh, during what happened in Katrina. But that's not what we had, courtesy of these white people. Uh, last couple things that stood out. Uh, I definitely agree with Lance Hill's uh, assessment, even though I suspect he's a racist. He's been on the program before. Uh, the Times Picayune. Now, now they're going to get behind Ron Foreman. Um, interesting metaphor him saying that it's like Night of the Living Dead, people just showing up on his doorstep to give him $1,000 checks hand over fist. In three days, he raised $2.5 million. Same thing I said uh, after the first audio segment. It is astronomical. That's what I mean about the resources. One white man can go and make a decision and in three days, he gets $2.5 million. I, don't, I just don't know under these conditions what you're going to be able to do to combat that. For white people, it's just so easy for them to do what they want. They have more power than us. It's easy. I just don't know how you'd be able to uh, subvert that to be able to keep your property or your life or whatever else is going to be the case. Um, anything else I want to make sure I get out? Mitch Landry, I can save my comments because there will be more to say about Mitch Landry. I'm, yeah, I'll save my comments about Mitch Landry because there will be more to say about that as we uh, move forward. I'll stop there. Uh, folks have other comments they want to get in or return to if uh, things oh I, there is one more thing I wanted to say about the uh, the looting them saying that people were going in and stealing property and what have you I think it's very I, I have tried to point out as we've gone along the militarized response that we got to this it was difficult for black people to get access to even be able to go back to their houses I have serious questions about whether or not black people would be solely responsible for any looting of houses that took place post Katrina. You had so many armed white people there. It would have been easy for them to do that. Who would have stopped them? Black people had a hard time even get back to see if I got a bed left, if I got a window left of my residence, much less to go and rummage through somebody's uh, property without being shot or accused of being a looter or locked in a cage or what have you. And I would also add that to the, uh, gun reports and saying that there was all this gunfire and shooting you had 80% of the city underwater most people that uh, most black people I know they have not had extensive firearm training police officers who are trained with weapons were dropping their guns in the flood water they wouldn't fire you cannot convince me that black people would have been able to operate in that environment as firearm specialists to make sure that the guns weren't getting wet the bullets weren't getting wet you can keep the firearm clean I mean, come on, that's not even believable uh, to me. I'm sure there were some people who were armed and what have you, but it's, it's, it's not all you would have is one ball in the water, one slip, one ball, bam, whole gun is wet, ammunition is wet. Now what are you going to do? It just It's not logical to me. I have serious questions about a lot of it. I will stop there. Other folks have anything they want to share? We have about three minutes left uh, if you have other commentary. Yes, I can finish mine about 30 seconds as for black people being able to do anything 
to stop the land grab. Uh, I guess they could do what the city council president, Oliver Thomas, did when he was talking about his mother's home. He could stand in front of it in opposition to the bulldozer, but I wouldn't advise that because bulldozers have been known to just run people over. And one last thing is we can uh, look at the recent flooding of South Carolina and compare it to what, you know, the response that they got from the National Guard and the people helping the water that was brought in, all the food and all of the provisions that was provided for them in, in contrast to what happened at Katrina. And uh, like someone said, that's, there was no martial law and no reports of looting. So I'll mute my line on that. Thanks for taking call. If I could just add on, um, as far as what black people can do, I don't see I don't see nothing. When white people make up their mind, they're gonna snatch your land, your property. Uh, we don't learn about the beach, room properties, um, inner city Chicago. I mean, they they will just take it. I mean, it's happening right here at home. There's nothing that you can do about it. I mean, like this gentleman you just said. I mean, unless you want to, you know, go down with the house, you know. Um, once they've made up their mind, it's no level of codification without no military backing or anything that we can do. Well, how about this? The only thing I've had experience with that, when they decided to put, what did they call it, the Trans-Texas Corridor, it was supposed to go through and it came to a dead stop in Wallace County. Pivoting away from the text. How about we do, you take ours, we'll take yours. How's that? Is that on the text? I mean, can't we just at least say something? Do we just have to pack up and leave? Is that, I mean, I just think that they could have done a little bit more. They could have said something. It When they come, they come and they do what they do. It, it's very, very hard, like, like um, Thomas Smith was saying, um, if you don't have military backing. And I just thought for them to be able to raise that kind of money in three days, um, money that sometimes takes more countries, you know, years to even accumulate or they have to ask, you know, um, ask uh, the IMF for, just speaks to the amount of money that, they have stolen at the expense of African people and continue to accumulate at our expense. And, um, oh, uh, just to clarify the pet Negro statement, I understand what you were saying. I wasn't saying it in a uh, name-calling kind of a fashion. It was more referring to how they were treating him, not him as a person being one. But I understand everything you were saying, so I just wanted to clarify that. Thank you. Oh, right on, right on, right on. Oh, just pulling on what we've read in this text. Uh, in terms of the response, now we read in this text that there were white people in New Orleans who hired not just private ambulances and <laughs> private medical assistance. There were white people who hired private army security <laughs> to come in and lock down the neighborhood. Now, I haven't heard one black person, even Mr. McDonald, the bank owner, not one black person who said, eh, I'm not worried about FEMA. 
I'm not worried about Blackwater. I have my own private security, and we are ready. I don't care what happens, what goes down, looters, George Bush, anybody. We are. I have not heard that story at all. That's the sort of thing I would say, just keeping in mind that, in my view, it's massive. It's massive. The power differential between what white people have under this circumstance and the black people, man, get your luggage. <laughs> that would be my recommendation. If oh. people decide for your property, get your luggage. It's probably going to happen if they really want it. I, I can't leave it there, guys. I, I'm like, you know, you don't have to. I mean, their house doesn't have to get struck by lightning this year. Doesn't oh. even have to get struck by lightning uh, next we month. We can do this tomorrow because we went over three hours. Uh, just time in tomorrow and, you know, we can pick that up and it won't be tied to the text. But uh, and bring evidence. If you've seen okay. evidence where white where black people have been able to figure out something successful, we can all look in and see if there's something successful uh, efforts that black people have made to keep their property. But all the stuff I've seen thus far. Sure. Black people lose that one every time. Um, diligent efforts, but that is white supremacy. Anyway, uh, we'll pick up next week. Uh, we're still chapter 17, Chocolate City chapter. We didn't finish it all, so you know I'll be looking forward to see how that plays out. If you have questions, people listen to the archives, you can drop an email and we'll read it. Included people that are listening, if you have theories on what black people could do, if anything, if you have a, a position on that, drop an email, we'll read it. If you uh, want to participate and what have you. Uh, anywho, we'll be back tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and Sunday is our one month early. Our once a month early program is this Sunday early, uh, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific uh, for those programs. And then we should have folks on from across the waters next week. So those will be funny times. We'll announce those this weekend. Uh, thanks for everybody participating, tuning in, looking forward. I hope it has been uh, constructive uh, with that. Number one, <laughs> we could uh, do everything we possibly can to minimize contact with enforcement officers. Buckle up if you're going to be in the vehicle. No alcohol if you're going to be in the vehicle. That is driver, pedestrian, passenger, whatever the case may be. Sobriety would be best under conditions of racism. Uh, white folks are constantly looking for means to get us in trouble, uh, cause us problems. Just, man, anything we can do to minimize that, make sure we're thinking clearly, logically to keep ourselves safe, keep white people from uh, just ruining our lives and, and, and people that we care about. Let's do that. And I think uh, cutting down on the intoxicants, alcohol would be great in that vein. Uh, with that, we will be back in about 24 hours. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of racism. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. You can check out Pam's work as well. Racism ws.com Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, 
like, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.